0: Hello and welcome to Theology Unleashed. Today we've got an interesting discussion. I've got two theologians, Seth Hart and Adi Purusha. Uh, they're both doing PhDs in the moment. Adi Purusha is doing one on the problem of evil. So he's very expert for this topic. And Seth has written papers on this subject before. So we'll get right into it. Um, Adi Purusha is going to give us a description of the problem of evil. Alright, uh,
1: thanks for having me here, Arjuna. So, the problem of evil uh, basically, according to certain uh, theological frameworks like Christianity and Bodhiya uh, Vaishnavism, which uh, is the tradition that I re- represent, uh, God is held to be all good, He's all powerful, and He's all knowing. And because He's all good, that means that He'd want to prevent uh, any evil from taking place. Because he's all-powerful, he would have the uh, power to prevent evil. And because he's all-knowing, he would have the ability to know how to stop evil. And yet, even though God has all these different qualities, we still find that evil exists in this world. So, uh, generally, atheists or uh, generally people who are against the existence of God uh, would argue that because evil exists, then... Uh, You know, either God is not all good, God's not all knowing, God's not all powerful, or God doesn't exist altogether. So, the problem of evil is uh, a challenge to theism because uh, it sort of indicates or suggests that uh, God, as he's commonly um, uh, depicted, uh, can't possibly exist. So, in response to the problem of evil, Different uh, philosophers and theologians uh, generally put forth what's known as a theodicy. So uh, it's basically, a theodicy is basically a way of justifying uh, the existence of God, even in the light of evil. Uh, So, you know, there's different theodicies that different uh, philosophers and theologians have put throughout. Um, You know, they may argue that actually the evil that we exist is not evil at all. Um, and that it serves a greater good. And uh, because the evil that we experience actually serves this greater good, then uh, it's not uh, inconsistent that evil exists, Um, evil coexists with God. And there's also generally two different types of evil. Um, There's moral evil, which is the evil caused by other human agents, and natural evil, which is evil caused by natural disasters like earthquakes, hurricanes, etc. So for a theologian um, who's trying to defend the existence of God, uh, their goal is to basically explain how, even though there's evil in the world, it's justified in the light of an all-loving, all all-good, and um, yeah, an all-good, all-powerful, and all-knowing God. So that's the problem of evil. And actually, there's, I should also mention that there's a logical problem of evil and the evidential problem of evil and the logical problem of evil is uh, it's uh, it's basically trying to show that the coexistence of evil and God are uh, basically inconsistent with one e- uh, with each other. Um, and nowadays, uh, so that used to be popular for some time. Now it's more popular uh, is what's called the evidential problem of evil. So you know we see so much suffering in this world, so much uh, you know earthquakes, famine, coronavirus. You- And just from an evidential perspective, just from what we see, it can seem hard to imagine that there is a God in the light of the extreme suffering that we witness um, throughout human history. So that's generally considered to be the more pressing um, sort of variation of the problem of evil nowadays. So, yeah, maybe
2: Seth can add anything if I missed anything. No, that was uh, great. Um, The only thing I would add um, is that some people actually throw in the third. Uh, problem of evil, which is the emotional problem of evil, so it falls outside of the sort of philosophical discourse, mm. um, and I bring, it, I bring it up just because a lot, of, a lot, you see a lot of philosophers who want to distinguish that, hey, don't take my, 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 um, my defense, my theodicy, as trying to solve your emotional angst with this. This is purely mm. a logical exercise that at the end of the day, you might still feel emotionally that evil and God cannot coexist together. But as far, far as the pure logic of the situation goes, that can't be defended quite as easily, according to these certain theodicies. So I would just throw that in there. Mm, yeah, it's good. Uh,
0: I thought that some thoughts. of them conflated the emotional problem with the evidential problem.
2: Maybe you could speak more to that. I, I have seen some who that have sort of erred along that lines. yes. Um, perhaps I could throw in something else on that.
1: Yeah, um, I guess I haven't focused so much on the emotional... Well, the context I've seen, the emotional problem, some people sort of have used it as a way to shy away from doing any kind of theodicy altogether. Um, Some people say that, you know, just trying to understand the existence of evil through sort of logical means is just like a... It's almost like a heartless exercise, and it's better just to try to console people through it. Right. Um, That's kind of the context I've seen it. But you could probably... um, you know, I can see why one would include the emotional problem under the evidential yeah. problem. Different, uh, I mean, yeah. As far as these kind of technical things, I think people have different um, opinions and kind
3: of
0: yeah. different well, ways that they conceptualize it. I don't know it. how you separate them, though, because the evidential problem is saying, why would God allow, you know, babies to mm. have cancer or so on? And uh, at the at the root of that is really an emotion that says that babies shouldn't suffer.
2: Mm. Rooting out the distinction here is often um, difficult, um, which is why whenever you see these sort of analytic attempts, they get to, uh they they try really hard. They often come across very dry and unsatisfying, <laughs> even though they're logically rigorous.
0: Well, yeah. I think the I emotional. Read Swinburne. The epistemology of evil is emotion, really. So that's mm-hmm. how it gets messy. Anyway, why don't we launch into it and, Seth, you can give us your. Solution to the problem of evil.
2: Sure thing. So I'm representing the Christian viewpoint as if uh, my background doesn't give that away. Um, so yeah. within Western culture, the, the tropes of the Christian response to the problem of evil are, are quite common. You had a primordial paradise, an original paradise, a fall event, Adam and Eve, um, a rescue attempt. So Instead of like going through this in a prolonged period, I would really really want to focus in, I'll, I'll briefly go through that, but I really want to focus on areas that I think uh, where Adi and I actually have a little bit of clash. And that was a bit of an issue because Adi was generous enough to forward me some of his work um, so that we could to, uh, sort of have a better idea of where we were coming from. And I came to realize that he and I actually share far more in common in our theodicy than we are different. We both believe in an original paradise state. We both believe in a fall. We both believe in a redemption. So a lot of it, uh, a lot of it, what we come, the areas that we're coming from, are fairly identical. So launching straight into it, though, um, what Christians believe is that in the beginning God did create humanity in a state of innocence. Now, use the word innocence uh, instead of the word moral perfection, which is sometimes thrown in, thrown in there. That Adam and Eve, that the original humans were perfect. That's not technically correct. What they were is they were finite, and they were ignorant, and they were innocent of evil. And his creation of them was for, for the purpose of being co-regents that stood between heaven and earth. Humans, having both a spiritual and a material nature, a combination of the both, stood as a sort of connection point between heaven and earth. They could serve as priests that go between heaven and earth. And that, that way, they had communion both with God and with the human world, and therefore could serve as co-regents. And in that communion with God, we were granted eternal life. That uh, That is only granted through communion with God, who is life himself in Christian theology. But nevertheless, we were finite, we were limited, we were ignorant. We were created this way because certain things like virtue, Christians mostly hold to a virtue ethic, is the idea that virtue is cultivated, it's grown in time, it's something that is experienced and grown uh, in relationship with other people. Therefore, it's not something God could create ex nihilo, something at something out of nothing. It has to be grown. Um, but what that also means is that if God were to give us libertarian free will, the capacity to err, we would also have the capacity to choose to uh, to, <clears throat> to choose to reject that and leave that perfect state. So in Christian teaching, that's exactly what happened. The original couple in an isolated pocket of of paradise called Eden, something. Uh, Something that was isolated to a small region Humans chose to err This is logically necessary for God To create humans in a way uh, That they could sin If he is to grant them libertarian Free will and the capacity to cultivate Virtue. That's something I think Adi and I agree on to a greater Mm -hmm. extent And that's, that's what we call The fall event Now what caused the fall? Now in Christian theology it was through Deception and temptation to be like God Now, to be like God is not a bad thing. It's actually our natural end, according to Christian theology. But we did it in a way that was outside the will of God. It was a sort of a jump ahead. I'm pulling a lot from the theologian Irenaeus here, and I'm doing a terrible disservice by how quickly I'm going through this. But through the act of deception by a serpent figure, which I'll come back to, and a temptation to be like God, outside of the will of God, led to the corruption of human nature. So human nature is corrupted, and Christians debate about— uh, there's a debate between original sin and original guilt. Are we actually guilty of the sin of our ancestors, or is it merely just corrupt our nature to the point that we will sin, but we're only accountable for our own sins? Now, I'm going to do a sort of broad church perspective, so I'm only going to focus on original sin, which says we're not necessarily guilty of the sin of our ancestors, but we do have this original uh, this original corruption, which makes us sinful beings. And I think this allows us— um, to see why much of the evil in the world exists. Moral evil accounts for, if we, if we take this seriously, it accounts for the vast majority of the problems that we have. When we allow God, by allowing a libertarian free will, the ability to freely choose to not be determined, God uh, has created the possibility for evil actions. And as a discussion, uh, Adi and I were having before, Ivan Planiga has shown that this is a very logically defensible position to hold. As far as the logical problem of evil, as he mentioned, has actually been considered uh, pretty definitively shown to be false. That's why a lot of the argument has shifted to the evidential, because Alvin
3: planning has shown that libertarian free will allows for the coexistence of natural evil, which, which he brought up earlier.
2: Okay. All right. So going back to natural evil, how do we account for natural evil as Christians? Well, going back to the garden, we see that there was already evil forces at work, at play, even in this primordial paradise. Um, And what that allows us to, uh, to conjecture is that there was a fall before the fall. And so Christians throughout the centuries and even prior to Christianity in the intertestamental period, there's been a tradition of spiritual beings that have fallen away. So humans were not the only libertarian free agents that fell. Now, Christians have also accounted for many natural evils through this primordial fall of these angelic beings. So what I propose is that the easiest solution to the, the problem of natural evil is an extension of libertarian free will to include natural evils through these angelic beings. It's because of them, because of their action, these evil action, that we can understand why the natural world continues to work against us and work against the goodness that would have otherwise been. And there's plenty of Christians who've come on board with this. Uh, we've already mentioned Alvin Plantinga, uh, who has proposed this. Uh, there's also Hans Urs von Balthasar in the Catholic tradition. You have Wolfhart Pannenberg in the Protestant tradition. So it, it has a long tradition going for it. Now, if I'm gonna talk about a Christian theodicy, uh, I have to bring up Christ because everything to, sort of goes back to him. Because the question now is, is what happens to evil? Has God just simply left us in this evil state because of our choice? And the answer is no. Because just like the first Adam corrupted our nature at our origin, so Christ, who is the second Adam, that scripture calls him the second Adam, redeems our nature and will complete uh, to, in order to us to complete the end that he originally gave for us. So the very same freedom that corrupted us now we have the freedom that can save us. So through one man, sin entered into the world. And through one man, uh, redemption is offered now to all. And I, what I feel uh, this offers uh, in the Christian viewpoint that is unique is that it is an answer to both the emotional and the intellectual problem of evil, which is why I wanted to bring that up.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Emotionally, it helps us to understand that God doesn't sit aloft from evil. He enters into the trenches and does something drastic to defeat it. He does something amazing in order to rescue us. To me, that's a much easier God to to be able to have a relationship with, one who understands our sufferings, rather than a God who sits aloft from it. And it gives also a sense of meaning to suffering, because at the cross, we see perhaps the greatest act of evil in history, and a completely innocent man suffer. And yet, it also is the greatest act of good in history. Now, why do I say this helps us solve the emotional problem of evil? And this is what I want to say. Evil isn't truly evil if it has a meaning. One of the most painful experiences I've been told that a human could go through is childbirth. Yet in discussions of the problem of evil and theodicies, childbirth is virtually never brought up. Why? Because there is a sense of meaning to it. And by looking at Christ and seeing that as an exemplar of what suffering is, that suffering has meaning, We as Christians can understand our own sufferings as having meaning too, and that in some way takes away that emotional burden of evil. Intellectually, the intellectual problem of evil, that allows us to see evil as both alien to God's intention, yet instrumental in bringing about greater goodness. And I go back to the cross. It was alien to God's intention that he would have to come and die, and yet it was instrumental in bringing about the greatest goodness. Now I want to go ahead and move along, I've taken I've probably taken up too much time already, to the eschatology. And this allows us to see that the end state will be what the original creation was supposed to fulfill. Eden was an isolated place that was meant to expand. Because of human corruption, it never did. The end state will be the perfection of that. So Christ completes the task of humanity by becoming a human and can truly act as a high priest. Remember that bridge between heaven and earth. By being both God and man, he acts to fulfill the destiny of man by being that perfect bridge. And the church, we are both the recipients of that perfecting grace, and we also participate in bringing that grace to the world. So we in, we live that in proleptically within ourselves. We bring grace to the world. We bring that in ahead of time. And that is the point of the church, is that is the sort of influx of God's grace, this perfecting grace into the world. And I should probably, I could say a lot more, but I should probably in there and let you, let you talk. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that was good. I, uh, that was well-articulated. So, um, the I represent the Chaitanya Vaishnava or Gaudiya Vaishnava perspective, or Chaitanya Vaishnava perspective, you can refer it either way, or the Hare Krishna perspective, as it's commonly known. So, um, I guess where, where I'll first start is so the origin of evil in this world is very similar to what Seth described as a sort of fall from a higher state. So, the uh, Chaitanya Vaishnava view is that. Uh, You know, human beings or um, were really souls were created, were um, originally in a uh, sort of paradise like state with God, where they enjoyed a life of uh, uh, unending bliss with God. And then, through, because uh, to love God, um, in order to love God, we have to have free will. You know, God can't coerce us to love Him. Uh, coerced love is like a logical contradiction. It's like a square circle, it can't exist. So in order to have the ability to love God and experience the highest um, joy that we can experience, we also have to have free will and the ability to love God of our own accord without being forced. So because God gives us this free will, um, it means that we have the capacity to misuse our free will. Now, if God gave us free will, and somehow made it so we weren't able to misuse it, then it wouldn't really be free will. Uh, it would, you know, a, a, a agent that has free will but is um, prevented from doing certain things really doesn't have free will. It's like a square circle. It's just a logical contradiction. So, uh, even though God uh, originally has us be with him, because we have this uh, free will, some souls uh, are curious to understand what it's like to live a life separate from God. And, um, because some souls are just curious, uh, God produces, um, this world that we have here, this, uh, you know, we call like the physical world or the material world. And, uh, God doesn't want us to leave. He would rather us be with him. But, uh, you know, a free agent can only make a, uh, informed choice if they have knowledge of all their possibilities. And uh, for certain souls, they may want knowledge of all their possibilities. And one of those possibilities is to be uh, separate from God. So in trying to um, explore that possibility, these souls fall down, similar to what Seth described. The main difference between um, the uh, chaitanya Vaishnava perspective is that um, each soul is responsible for their own fall. actually according to our uh saints and teachers you know less than 10 percent of souls actually fall by and large most souls actually stay in the um you know paradise realm with god or we say the spiritual world so um yeah a vast minority even though it seems like there's a lot of uh human beings and other living beings in this world actually only a vast minority of uh souls actually fall so they fall into this world and um That explains uh, why we're here in the first place, why we're here in a world that does have earthquakes and tsunamis and coronavirus and, uh, you know, police brutality and all that. So uh, I think me and Seth are pretty much on the same page, more or less. There are some minor differences, but we're on a similar page as far as that goes. But where we differ now is that once the soul is in this world, um, the way that the reason he suffers or he or she um, suffers is because of karma you know some people a lot of people have an awareness of karma nowadays like you know what goes around comes around in one sense karma is basically the idea that for every uh, action that we have there's a um corresponding consequence to that action so if i punch someone in the face it'll be my karmic reaction to get punched in this uh face myself so karma explains uh, in one sense, why good things happen to bad people, why bad things happen to good people, you know, why we have to experience suffering. It's because we do an act and then it, uh, because we perform some action and it has, you know, we perform a bad action, we get a bad consequence in response. And uh, Seth made an interesting point. He mentioned that uh, you know, evil isn't evil if it has a meaning. So karma too is not meant to just punish us for its own sake, but it's actually meant to rectify us and teach us lessons so that we can ultimately return back to God. Because uh, even though we haven't, um, even though we've fallen away from God, um, we can always go back and actually um, the Hare Krishna view is that um, ultimately every soul has the capacity to go back, um, back to God. And that's because uh, not only is there karma, this kind of cosmic law that our uh, rewards or punishes us according to our deeds but there's also reincarnation so if the soul doesn't perfect itself and go back to god in this life um you know it can keep on reincarnating across different bodies until it finally uh learns its lessons and develops love for god and then goes back to the uh, spiritual world so um yeah so that's karma but uh in addition to karma If a soul decides to turn back to God and performs what we call bhakti, or basically um, loving devotion to God, then it can actually, uh, that's actually the way that the soul returns to God is by developing its love for God fully. And when the soul practices bhakti, it uh, can destroy its uh, karmic, um, uh, its karma basically. So it can, uh, the soul is no longer under its karma and uh, the soul is in God's hands at that point. And even though the soul is in God's hands, uh, it doesn't mean the soul doesn't experience suffering, but it, uh, it basically means that uh, God personally arranges or orchestrates suffering for the devotee to teach that uh, de- um, devotee lessons that'll bring it back to him. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the evil and suffering that we experience is really meant to rectify us and teach us lessons and it's ultimately a greater good. You know, there may be some suffering but in the light of going back to God and enjoying a life of eternal bliss with him, uh, the suffering is sort of, um, the ends justify the means. So um, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, so just to sort of capit- um, recap what I've said, there's the soul falls, then once it's in the world, uh, there's karma. And karma is notable because God doesn't force the soul to suffer. Karma means that the soul... Um, through its own freely chosen actions, creates its own happiness and distress. And then um, beyond that, if a soul decides to turn to God, they can have their karma destroyed and God personally produces um, suffering for that devotee. So I think I've talked uh, for a while. Um, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Each one of those points can be elaborated in some greater depth, but uh, I think that's a good place to uh, end that.
0: Okay, um... Seth, do you want, uh, what are we going to do next? Do you want to um, offer some objections to Seth's um, The honesty now? Uh, Eddie Perusha?
1: Yeah, so um, there's a few things. Um, one is, um, so I guess we can debate how long it's been at this point, but um, I guess one challenge is, why do humans have to suffer for another uh, person's sins? You know, why is um, why do we have to suffer for Adam and Eve's sins, even though, you know, we didn't actually do anything to be placed in our situation of sin? It was sort of imposed on us. So that's one point. Um, another point is uh, uh, see the problem of why basically why certain people are placed into better circumstances than others from the time of their birth. Um, you know, why someone's born rich and has everything handed to them, why someone else uh, basically, you know, is, um, you know, poor and suffers and because of the situations that they were born in and had no control over if there's no notion of reincarnation. Uh, and another is natural evil. Um, you know, what determines whether or not someone, you know, even if it's caused by moral agents, you um, is it arbitrary? Is there some sort of structure behind it? Because if I'm walking down the street and, uh, you know, I get struck by a lightning bolt for, you know out of the blue for no reason, it would be unfair for that to happen to me um, unjustly unless I did something to deserve it or if it taught me some sort of spiritual lesson. And um, I'm kind of throwing a lot. We may not be able to address all of these, but another really important question to ask in the context of um, the problem of evil is also... One of the greatest evils you can uh, possibly imagine is that someone is damned forever someone is uh, permanently in a state you know like a hell-like state where they're disconnected from god and what's good about reincarnation is that there is no um, permanent hell for the soul they always can grow throughout their lives and um, they're never permanently in a state um, where they're just disconnected from god and have no hope of redemption they can hope to be redeemed, uh, you know, if not in this life, then some future life. Um, And I think, uh, yeah, I think some of those are probably pretty good um, for now.
2: All right, you ready for me to respond? Yeah. Great. Um, I actually really appreciated those. Two, uh, two of the points. So uh, I counted the four points. Two of them are actually uh, connect really well with objections I have to your system. So I think this will be a okay. good back and forth. Yeah. Uh, and one, and the other two, I think I have a similar answer. So I, I'll try and get to both of those. Um, okay. So to start off, why do uh, why do Adam and uh, why do we suffer for the sins mm-hmm. of Adam and Eve, the sins of some primordial parents? Um, and I think uh, this this connects really well with the objection that I have with the karmic system, which is that it mm-hmm. feels far too individualistic for me. Mm -hmm. Um, within Christian theology, our shared humanity is far more fundamental than any of our individuality, um, Mm -hmm. despite what we're taught in the West. So, uh, to quote Dostoevsky, it might be a line that you're familiar with, everyone is responsible for everyone and everything. And Mm -hmm. that, to me, is this very huge summation. So, the idea that I come into this this world and I'm only responsible for my own evils, there's something Mm -hmm. that's that that sits with me a little bit too individualistic. Whenever a far greater morality is one that I there, there's a person suffering on the other end of the world, and I am responsible for that to that person, um, mm-hmm. and I'm responsible to every other person. And so our shared humanity. When you understand that the, the Christian ontology or Christian anthropology, theological anthropology, is uh, that you need to understand the, the fundamentality of our shared human nature outweighs our individuality, then I begin to see mm-hmm. more why, if the sins of others, I'm responsible, in some sense, mm-hmm. for them. Um, and that also makes sense of their redempt- the redemption in Christ, right? Because I'm mm-hmm. not responsible for what Christ did, and yet it's still bestowed to me. That's why he can be the second Adam, the second man, mm-hmm. um, because his works are bestowed to me. And so... Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of an answer to me. And, I, and that sort of connects to another, uh, uh, another issue, which is the idea of altruism, right? If everything is mm-hmm. about me, this idea that what makes an action good, I'm motivated completely by my own sort of self perfection. Mm-hmm. I, I, I struggle with the idea of forgiveness there. Um, we're just, mm-hmm. So it's, a question, it's more of a question than an actual objection it's what is the place of forgiveness within the karmic system? Now, is it truly, now for me too, to say someone else, is it purely just for my own purification um, that's one question but also can God himself forgive can he truly wipe away someone's sin without uh, you know without any sort of sort of karmic payback or essentially um, so that's one question um, you also brought up eternal damnation and that's another thing because uh, I, I noticed uh, that you you do believe in the sort of uh, universalism that all everyone eventually mm-hmm. makes it back correct mm-hmm yeah. Um, and I, I, I think this connects with my idea of uh, free will. Free, free will to me is only meaningful if mm-hmm. our choices have eternal values. And the analogy mm-hmm. I like to think about is imagine a, a mouse maze where every turn you make, it all ends up right back at the same point, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now you've given the mouse choices, but those choices ultimately don't matter in the end, if he ends up at the same place, those choices have no meaning, and no more meaning than if you just gave the straight path, because he always ends up back at the same place. If our, mm-hmm. so, free will seems to lose a bit of its value if there are no eternal consequences. If everyone sort of ends up at the back at the same place, what was the point of freedom to begin with? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to me, free will actually has more meaning, has that meaning that we needed, that you and I both needed to have, if if we have this possibility for eternal damnation. I should also mention that. Um, eternal damnation is not universally held by Christians. David Bentley Mm -hmm. Hart, John Milbank, um, two two maybe of the greatest theologians of the world, both universalists. But I am, since I don't (laughs) particularly hold to that view, I just want to throw that out there, uh, that Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily defending of sort of encompassing Christianity here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And finally, you brought up, uh, why do some uh, suffer more, uh, why do some suffer Mm -hmm. more, and why is there uh, natural evil? And I think the answer to both of these is, the idea, uh, are you, I, I know you've worked in, with Alva Plantinga and William L. Craig's probably work mm-hmm. as well,
1: right? Uh, middle, middle
2: knowledge? Middle knowledge. I'm not going to appeal to middle knowledge, but I'm going to appeal to the idea sort of brought about, out from that idea, which is the idea of, of someone who's suffering, say someone who's born impoverished and another person who's mm-hmm. born rich. Um, those within the Christian narrative, within the Christian framework, your individual placement, um might look bad from a sort of finite perspective, but within the overall perspective, it's going to be, it's mostly the poor people, blessed are the poor, because it's those who, by and large, have embraced the Christian narrative and received salvation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so, in in retrospect, looking in hindsight from the Christian narrative, it might be more of a question of why the rich were allowed to be rich than why the poor were mm-hmm. allowed to be poor. Um, yeah. And the same might go for natural suffering as well, that there is sort of a meaning built into it, that God sort of controls the narrative, that these these sort of uh, events and the sort of middle knowledge perspective, you don't have to hold the middle knowledge, but I, I, I'm appealing to that since I figured you'd had, mm-hmm. had re- re- that you researched through this, that there is a sort of ultimate into that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, if I may, can I level one more objection real quickly? Um, yeah, sure. So you, say, you talk about curiosity, like God presenting us Mm -hmm. with all the possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. And for our residency. And if I might pull a quote from something, is that all right if I pull a quote from something? uh, In order to be vindicated, this is from page 89 of uh, Mm -hmm. what you sent me, in order to be vindicated from any charges of directly generating or producing a self-suffering, God must therefore provide the self with adequate knowledge of all its residential options in order for the self to make a fully informed decision as to where it Mm -hmm. wants to live. Now, that struck me because the idea seems to be that, that we did make a fully informed decision and left God. But to mm-hmm. know God in his infinite goodness is to know God as infinitely good. Mm-hmm. And so any other finite choice will be infinitely less than the fullness of God. Which, mm-hmm. to me, I mean, any, any libertarian freedom will always rule out that if you have no desire for something, you're not going to choose it. Which is why I'm not scared I'm going to start, you know, jump, you know to, to try to do a backflip right now. I have no desire to mm-hmm. do that. Um, and that's not a, any sort of limitation on my free will. So, mm-hmm. so the question is: Is how can a desi- How can we be fully informed if mm-hmm. we know God and His infinite goodness, and yet there still be finite, uh, and so and, and there be finite goods, and we be tempted by those? Mm-hmm. And also, whatever answer you give to that, how will this prevent us from falling again? Mm-hmm. So that's that's it. That's okay. That was those awesome. are my objections.
1: That was good.
2: Uh okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I sorry. I drove on. You can shut me up anytime you want. Oh,
1: this is good. Uh, this is good. So,
2: yeah, so uh
1: as far as the individualistic and shared humanity, that's an interesting point. Um my response to that, uh I don't I think unfortunately, it'll probably be hard to get in-depth into each one of these, but um right. the idea in uh Vaisnavism is that souls are we're all parts in parcels of God, as our um, founder used to mention. So in one sense, we all have our individual existence. You know, we are distinct individuals, me, you, and Arjuna. But in one sense, we have a shared identity because we're all parts of God. And in that sense, we have a shared brotherhood. We have a spiritual brotherhood. So, um, you know, I think it is still... uh, I think there is scope to have a shared humanity even though we're all in charge of our own individual kind of karmic baggage. Because we may be individuals, but in one sense we're united in that we're all one family of God. So the impetus we have to help others is um, the fact that, you know, you're my brother and Arjun's my brother and I want to see my spiritual brothers and sisters be uh, uplifted and free from suffering. And the idea of compassion also. you know, the more we advance spiritually, the more we should feel the sufferings of others as a suffering of our own. There's a Sanskrit term, Paradukaduki, which indicates this. So um, I guess my response would be that our shared humanity doesn't necessarily come from a sharing of our karmic baggage, but a sharing of our uh, ultimate identity as uh, fellow parts of God. So that's one. Um, And then two, the place of forgiveness. um, I guess the... uh, You know, the ultimate aim of ultimately what God wants is our love. And the ultimate aim of any sort of punishment really is to rectify it so that we can come back to that love. So from God's perspective, um, you know, he just loves us purely. Uh, He loves us unconditionally, and he doesn't want anything from us. He only wants our own highest benefit, which is our highest benefit is actually to love God. So he's willing to forgive us even though we've done so many things because he's uh, completely uh, pure. But uh, as far as your question of can he wipe away sin without payback, um, one kind of nuance is that God, um, when he burns karma, he may sometimes leave some traces of that karma just to teach us lessons. So uh, by having those traces, God can teach us lessons. So in one sense... um, It's like God forgives us um, and sort of clears a lot of the slate, but he leaves some things there just so we can really learn our lesson. And uh, I would argue that, um, you know, in order for someone to really be forgiven, they have to really, from the bottom of their hearts, be uh, fully repentant of what they've done. And by allowing these token traces of karma, God can enable us to really learn the lessons we're meant to and really come back to him with a really... um, uh, you know, really wanting to come back to him and really sort of uh, you could say repentant for having turned away from him and then there's that so your question on free will is uh, as far as ending up in the same destination, that's interesting um, because I would argue that um, the way you describe free will is kind of like a fatalistic outcome, uh, but I would argue that to have libertarian free will means that at any choice at any point you could choose between X and Y. There's no point in which you've decided, okay, I want X, and now I want X forever. To have libertarian free will um, means that you always have the capacity to choose between your available options. And if you have the opportunity to choose between all your available options, then it I argue it doesn't make sense that the soul is permanently chooses to be damned, because there's no state at which it could not choose to want to turn to God. Um, and you could argue that the other flip side is true, and you've actually mentioned that. That um, And actually, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll get to that uh, later, but that would be my main rejoinder to that, is that it wouldn't make sense for us to be permanently disconnected from God, even if we chose to, and even if we're heading in a certain way. The idea is that naturally the soul wants to love God, that's its sort of natural condition. And through learning lessons, uh, the soul can give up its um, uh, willingness to turn away from God and the soul can uh, learn lessons and shape its character and ultimately turn back to God of its own accord. I think analogy would be useful
0: for that point. Like if you say all children have free will and they can grow up and they can be homeless or they can have a job and a family and they can choose, make life decisions that will make them end up in one or the other, and if you say life goes on for infinity, eventually everybody's going to end up with a roof over their head and family relationships and so on. You're not going to have people living in the gutter with drug addiction for eternity because that's just not a desirable state to be in. Eventually anybody who's gone down that road will figure out they're not happy there, get their life together and come to a desirable way of living. So it's to say that everyone will eventually achieve perfection with God. Is really just to say that there's enough time that people can make up their mind where they're going to go, and that's always the option of choosing God, mm-hmm. and choosing God is um, objectively more desirable than being separate from God.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's good enough. It's like, um, I'm trying to think of another analogy. It's like if, um, like, it's like clearly objectively better to, um, like, eat some nice ice cream rather than just, like, some, like, stale. Rotten potato chips you found in your couch that have been there for like three months. Um, let's just say, like for the sake of argument, like it's objectively better to have that ice cream than that potato chip. Now, to have libertarian free will means you always have the choice to have that nasty potato chip. But if you're, um, uh, I don't know, if you're aware of your highest benefit. Uh, you choose that ice cream because you know it's better, and it's objectively better, and it's you know you can see that it's giving you more satisfaction, and you've had so much satisfaction from that that you don't even want that potato chip, even though you have the choice. So it's similar to that with God. Um, through learning lessons, we can learn to see that a life away from Him is like that nasty potato chip, and that you know God is like that uh, ice cream, and it doesn't necessary knowing that God is that ice cream and knowing we can be happier with God doesn't mean that we don't have the choice, but it means that um, we know that God's better. So I would argue that eternal damnation, in contrast, is like saying that, you know, you have that potato chip and you've just decided forever that you're going to choose that potato chip when you could uh, alternatively learn that the ice cream is better. So now to come to the last point, um, I think when I... um, So when I wrote that God has to provide selves with knowledge of all its possible options, it's not and one of those options must be god uh, it's not that the soul necessarily needs to know god in full it's just that the soul needs to know that um, you know god is there and the soul can never know god in full it can never know should, uh, um, understand god stick completely on one
0: point for a little bit and then move on Seth can reply to this topic
1: okay um, is that good
0: okay might be a better flow if we just stay on one point and then and then change subject and leave one point behind
2: that's okay. good. I'd, I'd mute myself. Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, there were actually there are actually three points there. Do you want me just to focus on the last one?
1: Uh, yeah, I think the first uh, the first two I think are uh, I think the last one is actually the most interesting. So yeah, I think that okay. A, I think a um, dialogue.
2: Okay. Um, I do find point two with the forgiveness thing. Um, if we have time, i really would actually like to come back to. But let's see. Okay. You're right. Point three is interesting. Yeah. So I should clarify. So. Um, yes, I understand the sort of transcendental fixation, the sort of transcendental mm-hmm. determination of us towards goodness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't actually deny that at all. Um, mm-hmm. So I should clarify that I'm not saying that I don't think free will uh, is possible
3: mm-hmm. if
2: we're all ultimately determined. My point is that the free will is not meaningful. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if our choices, and, and that's why I use the sort of mouse illustration, is why why give us free choice at all? Is we mm-hmm. all end up in the same place? So there's a, still a determination of our will mm-hmm. toward an end. So even mm-hmm. though our individual choices are not determined, they're indeterministic. Our path is determined. Mm-hmm. So the question, is, so it's still a deterministic system. Um, and to me, the very the, like of you and I agree is free will has value in and of itself, sort of an intrinsic, uh, uh, mm-hmm. an intrinsic value. Um, I will reply with the whole hell thing. Uh, free. Uh, Free will always operates on individuals, and individuals are developed through habits, which is why I consistently talked about virtue, right? Mm -hmm. So say the first time you try to ride a bike, it's real hard, and you're choosing, you're making all, you're very conscious of the action, you're making all these choices, right? Mm -hmm. And eventually, when you, after you develop a habit and do it, you're, eventually when you're riding a bike, you're not even choosing to anymore, it just becomes part of your nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, so freedom is always for the development of a nature. Right, Mm -hmm. And so, in Christian theology, to choose sort of anti-nature, to choose sin, to choose evil, a sort of self-destructive action, that too can become a habit. Mm -hmm. And there is a sort of fixation, a final fixation in that, to where just like a bike, Mm -hmm. it becomes second nature. It's something you can't even choose Mm -hmm. anymore. So there is, in Mm -hmm. a sense, a destruction of the free will based upon the choices we make now. That's why I think Mm -hmm. that the current life is so vital in the Christian system, because it has sort of these ultimate outcomes because we're always on a trajectory either toward good or toward really evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, I might throw in, um, the like the, another possible solution that I just want to throw out to my annihilationist friends is that there is a complete annihilation and that's what hell is. Um, mm-hmm. That's a growing position within evangelical circles. I'll throw that out to them. So, anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so, that's good. I have a... That's good. Uh... I like this, this is making me think uh, more than that, so I
0: don't know really. I I'm not going to come up with my
2: own ideas just, just yeah. talking to, to other people uh, there. Yeah, so regarding yeah. the destruction
0: so, of the free will I'd say what's, what really happens is you, you develop certain tastes or preferences and those preferences to some extent dictate what you do with your free will so this is a big idea in Bhagavad Gita that by acquiring a higher taste you give up okay. the lower, so you know, somebody who's, uh, say, it, you know, addicted to drugs and that prevents them from being able to play sport and then they start playing soccer a lot and they figure out that their drug habits are preventing them from being able to say, play soccer and they're getting a higher taste from playing soccer so they give up their drug habits in order to better serve their higher taste and better facilitate that. So has, has mm-hmm. their development and a taste for playing soccer destroyed their free will? by making it so they can't choose drugs anymore it's just like adding another no, what, uh, layer of analysis to it mm-hmm. um what's, so free will free will is always
2: i'm gonna get into my thesis a bit free will is always teleologically oriented it's always oriented towards goodness we always choose things based on good which kind of goes to the the objection that you started to talk about mm-hmm. um that if we go god fully we will always choose him because we always want maximum goodness and god is mm-hmm. maximum goodness mm-hmm. Um, so in choosing, you know, certain things over another, what we are doing is we're cultivating in ourselves goodness, right? So the mm-hmm. whole point in Christian theology for free will is ultimately, uh, it is to ultimately to become full beings. And that actually, mm-hmm. that sort of exercise, this fulfillment of our being, becoming all that we can be by participation in God, actually opens up libertarian free will, not in a sense of growing in being, but mm-hmm. sheer your, your absolute choice in our relationship with God, um, mm-hmm. But certain things are set, which is why you can't leave heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Becoming the most virtuous person possible, everything will look distasteful to you. As you cultivate that mm-hmm. virtue and develop in your being, mm-hmm. when you reach that sort of end, that goal, that God mm-hmm. is working in you, uh, everything becomes... And you, you talk about this as well. I think you use a fire analogy, uh, your quote scripture with a fire analogy. So I think we actually share a lot of that in common. Mm.
1: Yeah. So... Um I did have some responses, though. So okay. you said that you said free will is not meaningful if the path is deterministic. Yeah. Um, and that sort of uh, that sort of seems to indicate that there can't be a scope for an objective um, highest good, because if uh, you know having an objective highest good means that there is some you know something that reigns supreme above all everything else,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, so, I guess, if free will, if there's the option that, you know, there are multiple paths that people can choose, that sort of seems to connote that, that's sort of contradictory to the idea that there is one supreme highest good for all se- uh, all souls. So, I guess, um, I would maybe respond also by saying that the, um, uh, I guess, I mean, that's it, a good point that if, uh all souls come back to God, then the path is kind of deterministic and that, you know, all souls eventually come back to God. They never had the choice to do otherwise. But I think, um, you know, you can still have, in a I guess you can still have um, souls coming to God and it still make free will meaningful because uh, I guess you can get into what makes free will meaningful, but I would argue that, you know, uh, the path may be deterministic. You know, there may be the highest good for the soul. But what makes free will meaningful is that the soul always has the choice to leave that behind and choose something else.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They always have that. Even when they're with God, they have the choice to leave him and do something else. So that free will is always there. It's just through their own accord they choose God, even though they have these other options available to them. Yeah. So it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's like, uh, it's in one sense... It's deterministic in the sense that there is something that's so amazing that everything else is pale in comparison. but uh, I would argue that it's um, even though there's this one amazing thing that's uh, uh, everything's pale in comparison and all souls eventually do come back to it. Uh, there's free will still made meaningful because you have the option to choose otherwise. and the fact that you can choose otherwise makes your choice to be with God even more meaningful because you're choosing to be with God even though you have all these options available to you. Uh, and then, go ahead. Uh, okay. And then the free. So the what you describe is that the souls becoming um, progressively averse to God is kind of a second nature. Kind of uh, kind of suggests a sort of fatalism that almost seems to be uh, contrary to libertarian free will because it sort of seems to suggest that at a certain point, you know, the soul will just be so averse by its own nature that it has no capacity to change itself. And beyond the soul's own capacity to change itself, it also seems to imply that there's no capacity for God's grace to allow that soul to over uh, to rewire and change their habits. Whereas in the um, Hare Krishna view, there's a similar phenomenon that the soul can progressively go down, but because God's grace is so powerful, if the soul at any point decides to turn to God, and it always has a choice to turn to God, then God's... Um, just calling out to God is so powerful that it can sort of eradicate those tendencies and the soul can redirect itself back upwards to God.
0: The, the prison so, analogy might help explain that a bit better too, like a prison run by a conditioned soul has an extremely high recidivism rate, which means that people, once they get out of jail, generally go back, that the being in the prison hasn't reformed their character. But on the Vedic, on the Vaishnava view, the, the material world is like a prison... For rebellious souls, with the aim of correcting our mentality and ultimately elevating us in love of God. And when God sets up a prison, the recidivism rate is not so high that it eventually serves its purpose of purifying our heart, and our rebellious mentality is corrected, our perverted desires are purified. Oh.
2: Yeah, okay, so. So there's two points I saw that you brought up. The first one is is that uh, free will can still be meaningful if, because we choose, to, we, 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 that choice is still there, correct? That's mm-hmm. what's it. we still choose to, because that, there's a freedom to do it. To me, that seems to make, the question I'm, I'm trying to, to, to bounce this off against is why mm-hmm. not determinism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why, did not, why did God not create a deterministic system where people always stay with him? I um, love, so why didn't he fully, and this sort of goes into another objection that we might have time for with, why didn't God so fully reveal himself to him, or fully reveal the evils, that this sort of evil was never a temptation, correct? Because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. eventually where we're going to be. And to me, mm-hmm. uh, that's always, we have to get back to the God creating in a place of, of, of virtue cultivation that he had created us in ignorance. Mm-hmm. The problem I'm seeing with your view... Um, is that if everyone sort of ultimately ends up back with God? Yes, you could still say that it's that it's still good to choose, but it seems to make the, the very act of choice of rebellion against God a good in itself. But we would not want to say rebelling against God or choosing to leave God is good in itself. So why allow it? Mm-hmm. In, uh, you know, for me, it's a necessity uh, of of the very nature of what it means to create virtuous creatures. Um, mm-hmm. But for you, it seems like that the free will itself, sort of just by allowing that that possibility, that you're allowing that that freedom in those creatures, um, uh, the, the allowing that you make that choice itself a good thing, that they chose to rebel against God. And this also brings up the issue of, you say 90% stayed behind, why create the other 10% then? Unless God f- mm. f- fails in foreknowledge. So... Um, and the third issue that I thought of with that is the system itself that they go mm-hmm. through doesn't seem to promote their return to God in the best possible way. So, for instance, like, between my lives, mm-hmm. I have no memory of my past life. Mm-hmm. So why is my memory blanked out? If I knew, if I knew what I was being punished for, uh, perhaps uh, I could return quickly. Why isn't there some sort of revelation? Or why is, there, why is memory sort of blanked out every 80, 80 mm-hmm. uh, 90 years between lives? Uh, the second point you brought up is grace uh, sort of just seems to end in hell. So why does God's grace sort of get cut off at that point? Um, and am I, am I summarizing that correctly? Uh, yeah. Um, why does why grace get cut off in hell? Mm-hmm. And I think that, it, I don't think it does. I, mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't think it does. But what you need to understand is grace is always on offer. And this is the, the capacity, because I agree with you that the choice to pursue God is good. That a freely chosen that a freely chosen good is good, but the ultimate goal of it is always transcendentally determined toward God Himself. So that ultimately we want to love God simply because it's who we are. It's not something we choose mm-hmm. to do. It's just who we are. You know, a mother doesn't mm-hmm. choose to love her child every day. You ask a you mm-hmm. ask a mother to not love her child, and she's just she she would she could sooner do anything than stop loving her child. She doesn't feel like she mm-hmm. has a choice in that. And that's the sort of end goal that we have with God. Um, now take that in with hell, right? And so, if you're Mm. trajectorying towards God, eventually you don't have that choice. Now, if you're trajectory away from God, eventually you won't have that choice as well. You're developing Mm. habits, right? Mm. So, grace is always on offer, but the question is not whether or not God's grace is offered. The question is whether we can receive God's grace. Mm. So, does that make sense? Yeah. Oh,
1: that was good. Uh, Let's see. So, um... It's not so much that, uh, to the first point, that the fall itself is a good thing. Um, It's not necessarily good that the soul falls. It's just God so structures it that even though the soul makes this bad decision, um, that he can still be redeemed. Uh, And as to why uh, these 10% fall, um, so to that I would say that, uh, you know, I guess God creates souls that are by and large rational. That they have, um, you know, they by and large see that it's better to be with God, but it comes back to the point of how it's logically impossible to produce um, selves or souls that uh, have no capacity to turn away from God. Um, You know, God could not, you know, He couldn't just be like, uh, okay, this soul is going to fall. I'm not going to make him, or because then, you know, he, in order to have free will souls to have free will, they have to have that capacity, Um, and maybe not everyone will act on that capacity to leave God, but that capacity has to be there if it's to be truly uh, a truly free relationship. Um, Mm -hmm. Alvin Plantinga kind of uh, defends this logically with transworld depravity and all um, that kind of line of uh, argumentation, but basically, I guess I would argue that uh, it's maybe not that God doesn't have foreknowledge, but he knows that Um, it's just a logical impossibility, like a square circle, to create souls, and none of them have the capacity to fall whatsoever.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, to make souls, to be able to make souls that have free will, there has to be that chance, that capacity, that some souls will misuse their independence. And if there's enough souls, uh, that have this capacity, you know, it may be inevitable that there's a small minority that do misuse it. But God could not create all souls without, um... God cannot uh, create souls with the uh, capacity to misuse independence without um, some souls being able to misuse that. Yeah.
0: But um, also another point to make so would be that the, the kind of, it, would, it would be a sort of eugenics to say, let's not create any of the souls that would fall down because um, those souls that fall down, they later get perfection. And that perfected state Mm -hmm. is good, which justifies all the suffering they went through and all the pain Mm -hmm. and everything. Because, you know, it's it's like that old question, is it better to have lost it? But it would still be a
2: superior world, right? It would still be a superior world, a world where no one ever fell than a world that did fall. Um, And for God, who is perfectly good, the idea of him saying, I could choose to create a perfect world where no one ever has to suffer, a world where they do have to suffer, even though it's justified in the end.
0: Well, we, mm-hmm. I see, guess
1: see, thing, yeah I guess God can't actualize a world where no one falls uh because a world where no, no one falls right. is a world where no one has free will because again, if you're in a world same. yeah yeah, so. yeah yeah, so yeah it's basically god it's logically impossible to actualize a world where no one falls because in such a world selves don't actually have free will they're prevented from falling, and then you know they're they're mm-hmm. like you know a self a soul that's has free will and is at the same time controlled by certain restrictions and parameters that it can't violate, is not really free. Well, also
0: I think we could do so, a Vaishnava version of what I think is called uh, supralapsarianism. The idea that, superlapsarianism. that Jesus suffering on the cross was such a uh, a, a good thing that it justifies all the suffering that needed to happen in order for that to exist. So in a, a similar way, we can say that the the good of taking these conditioned souls who fall into the material world and raising them up, you know, like so many prophets have come and so many religions and they elevate people in God consciousness that there's there's a special kind of good that's there in this uplifting of other living entities that if everybody was just perfect all the time, we couldn't have that kind of expression of compassion. Yeah,
1: and then, so as for your third point, yeah, this is where... uh, it starts to get interesting. Um, so, yeah, that whether this world that God creates, you know, whether the version, uh, you know, karma is, um, whether karma is the best uh, process for us to come back to God, um, is one that's been uh, hotly debated. And you mentioned one argument, the memory argument. You know,
3: mm-hmm.
1: karma is there. Why can't I remember things? There's actually a lot of other arguments. I do address the memory argument later. But the idea is that. One, I would challenge the idea that just because we don't have conscious remembrance of something doesn't mean we can't learn lessons. So uh, as one example, um, the experience of pain in general, I argue has a teleological purpose because it makes us more sensitive to others by reference to our own pain. So if I punch someone, there's something wrong in my consciousness that caused me to punch someone. And if I get punched in return, that teaches me what that uh, pain feels like. And I can learn from my own experience of that pain that it's, you know, it makes me sensitive. It rewires my own uh, psyche to be more sensitive. And you know, having been punched, I feel like, oh, I don't want to punch something else. So um, even though we might not have conscious remembrance of some of the things we did, there are sort of other things we can do to sort of let that experience of pain serve a lesson for us. You know, If I punch someone in the past life and I get punched in this life, I may not remember that, but I can sort of be introspective and realize that uh, I have some violent tendencies, and it's possible that I did something based on these violent tendencies to harm someone, and now me getting punched is there to let me understand the repercussions of my violent actions.
2: So can, it, if, can I clarify just real quickly so I don't mm-hmm. misunderstand you? Are you saying yeah. that? Are you saying that, um, like, I might not remember, maybe I punched someone in the past life, I, I was just a mm-hmm. jerk um mm-hmm. but like now when i get tempted to do that that i might not remember it but there's somehow a there is some sort of resonance that lingers with myself through lives
1: yeah yeah i think if you're introspective you can realize that you have violent tendencies and um you know you may not remember that precise action but you can at least through introspection realize that, okay, I have these violent tendencies. It's possible that I acted on these in a the past life and now I'm getting a reaction
0: for I, it. I guess the key point would be the mentality remains. And even though you can't remember mm-hmm. what you did with that mentality, you still have the mentality that it has a tendency towards those actions. And then when you suffer the receiving end of that kind of mentality, you realize that that mentality is not a good thing to have and you start weeding it out of your heart. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. sometimes called what cosmic book. sensitivity training. Like, it's often mentioned in psychology how people who have suffered, they have a great amount of compassion and people who haven't suffered, uh, they're less likely to have compassion. So.
1: Mm, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, basically, it's not necessary that we uh, remember something for something to serve a beneficial purpose. Um, you know, just the experience of pain itself can make us more compassionate, uh, whether we remember what we did or not.
2: Right. Did you have a, a point for the, the grace and health? Oh, um, <clears throat> yeah,
1: so that's a good point, uh, whether we can receive grace. Um, I would argue that, in one sense, uh, the soul, through its own actions, can become progressively more godless and sort of reject the opportunity to uh, come back to God. But in the Hare Krishna view, that's where the karmic, uh, karmic mechanisms come into play. Mm-hmm. So, just the fact that you know these karmic mechanisms, the soul may be really reluctant to turn to God, but through these karmic uh, reactions, it shapes the soul, and uh, it's like soul making. It, it shapes the characters, um, it shapes uh, shapes the soul's character, and by repeatedly getting these karmic reactions, even if the soul is sort of averse to God, by getting these repeated lessons as it goes about lives, it can eventually start to. Um, Rectify its faults and improve its moral character. So in that sense, I argue that there's no You know, the soul doesn't have to choose God. It always has that choice and it may progressively be averse to God, but by gradually receiving these um, Kind of karmic Consequences then it sort of it shapes the soul and makes it uh, you know, maybe the suffering makes it more uh, Attuned to God or you know, maybe it learns lessons becomes more compassionate in one life it learns about, um, you know, it learns to control its anger in another life. You know, it can, even if it doesn't come to God, through these karmic mechanisms, it can at least improve its character, moral character, and from mm-hmm. there, it can be in a better position to maybe be receptive in some other life.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Gotcha. Um, yeah, those are uh, great, great points. Um, I have three points back, if that's mm-hmm. all right? Yeah. Uh, number one, you mentioned uh, talking about how, Just uh, if I can return to the idea, of is free will meaningful? Well, y- y- you say, well, you can be, because we ultimately will return to God eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, that that choice itself yes yes it's all sort of transcendentally determined in the end mm-hmm. but that sort of indeterminacy of coming backs and give it meaning to me I still have to appeal to the, the mouse uh, the mouse trap mm-hmm. or the mouse maze is mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it can be to me um, mm-hmm. if, if if it's if there's no po- real possibility of rejecting God then the choice doesn't seem to be very meaningful mm-hmm. Um and maybe this just comes down to our affective reaction to it because I don't feel that like, there's any meaning to it. To me, the one path makes a lot more sense than giving the mouse choice but ultimately determining its path doesn't really mm-hmm. add meaning to the maze. It doesn't add meaning to the choices of the mouse. The only re- re- way the mouse's choices have meaning is if it can fail, is if it cannot choose. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what gives it meaning. That's what The fact that your spouse can leave you mm-hmm. Is what mm-hmm. gives the marriage, the, the love covenant, so much meaning? Is they could always choose to leave, and they don't, mm-hmm. and not choose to leave temporarily and come back, but literally refuse, you refuse the offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and to mm-hmm. me, that's what makes refusing an offer really refusing an offer. It's not, it's not a, uh, it's not a not yet. It's a no. That's the difference between a mm-hmm. no and not yet. And to me, your system has a not yet, but it doesn't have a, a true no. And that's what makes the choice no really meaningful. Um, yeah. So that might just be more of a clarification of my point than anything. Uh, number mm-hmm. two, you talked about how we, uh, the memory of uh, that, and I, I, I do, I, I, I can gravitate towards the idea of there being a sort of, you having suffered in past lives can make you a better person. So there is a sort of resonance that goes through lives. It's not a mm-hmm. sort of tabula rasa blank slate, right? mm mm-hmm. um, so uh, I think that's great, and I think that's, that, that sort of softens the blow. I'm not sure if I can see it, it fully removing the memory objection, because then, if that, if that just by acknowledging that answer as being helpful, you have to beg the further question of, why don't we have more? You know? Why mm-hmm. is the karmic system... And, and it seems to be a rule, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not like there's, you know, a ton of people who remember past lives. Um, if there are, they're highly exceptional. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess the question to me still remains is, why isn't there more of this? Even if there is this sort of the subtleness to it that sort of is non-empirical that we could never truly detect, why mm, isn't there uh, more of this?
1: More of what, it precisely?
2: Oh, more memories, more more oh, okay. of this sort of past lessons, these p- past sufferings from these lives, because that would improve me uh, in my journey mm-hmm. and my return quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had a point on the grace... Uh, uh, you, you pointed out with... Uh, that's in your system that there is a sort of that's when karma kicks in and it prevents people from ever sort of removing themselves completely from the grace of god which is a great system to me but you also brought up earlier the idea of trans world depravity trans world damnation um, mm-hmm. and this is where i might say perhaps our world where no matter what karmic system is created uh, mm-hmm. that god does any chance that he has removing that there are people that simply won't do that that that, that the domino the sort of streams could never cross in a way where he could ever redeem everyone. To me, that's transworld damnation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and to me, as long as that's logically possible, the concept of hell makes sense.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. I, I really do like the idea of that karmic system. Um, the question is to me, is is that a possibility for God? And to me, you know, that we both have to probably just appeal to skeptical theism at this point. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so the first one, I guess that's uh, what makes free will meaningful, whether it means you always have the choice to just say no, never, or whether it means, um, like in my view, that uh, it means you have the choice to say no, but realistically wouldn't. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's maybe something you can't really, uh, it's a point, you know, agree to disagree point. Um, What makes free will meaningful, I guess, you know, that's Mm -hmm. in one sense a sort of subjective criterion. So, I think in that case, it's maybe agreed to a disagree, and we can kind of close that one. Um, okay. The memory, yeah, the more memory, um, yeah, I guess, why don't we have more? And one practical reason is that if we were bogged down with all of our memories through all our infinite lives, that'd be extremely um, difficult and burdensome. You know, if we remembered every single thing, you know, even just within one. Memory. Some people have really traumatic experiences that really prevent their, um, you know, that can really be very damaging for their spiritual life. So Mm -hmm. imagine that for, like, all of existence. That would be extremely burdensome. So in one sense, the fact that we get these fresh starts lifetime to lifetime, it's like, it's nice to have these restarts, you know, just like, even in this life, you know, we might be working away, working away on our dissertations, and then (laughs) we take a break. (laughs) We take a break from it from a little bit, and we come back to it.
3: That's
1: my yeah. partner, <laughs> That's uh Yeah. But yeah, you know, you know, we take a break from our PhDs, and then we come back to it, and that break gives us a new perspective. It lets us, you know, mm-hmm. keeps us fresh. It lets us um, see things from a different angle. It, it helps us in that process of what we're trying to do. So the fact that we have these births, you know, we, that we don't have one long, elongated life, but we have a series of lives where we forget things, sort of gives us a fresh start, and it, it's. I guess it's more, I would argue it's more conducive for our spiritual progress. Um, and then, uh, with the third point, you, you, know, you made an interesting point, as long as it's logically possible for there to be a hell, um, you know, it can happen. I mean, I would argue that by that same token, as long as it's logically possible for there to be universal salvation, universal salvation can also happen. Um, so, I guess... Um, you know, yes, souls can be stubborn. Um, they can choose to reject God, and they may take, you know, eons and eons and eons. But, um, you know, as long as there's the possibility of libertarian free will, it always has that choice to turn back to God. It may take eons, it may take eons and eons and eons. But the fact that soul has libertarian free will means that at any choi- point, it can choose between X and Y. And if X is eternal damnation, then Y is God. And at any point, no matter how degraded it is, it, always have that choice still to turn back to god so um i guess you know it may take eons but it's always a legitimate possibility um that any soul can turn to god at some point they may be very covered and it may take them a long time and it may take you know many many eons of experiencing karmic suffering and you know maybe they're suffering and really versed to god but then one life something just sort of you know one day they're just like oh i can't take it anymore you know they're walking down and they, um, you know, they go to church and they appreciate some good music or something, they're like, oh, this is kind of nice. Maybe I'd like a life kind of participating in this type of music. Or, yeah. you know, the, you know, There's so many things that the soul can do in this world. You know, All it takes is one sort of moment where it decides, you know, maybe I could turn to God. And that's all it would take to sort of you know, bring him back on the path uh, towards God. So
3: uh,
1: I said to argue, as long as there's infinite time, and there's, the po- there's that possibility, no matter how small, um, you know, I guess that possibility for universal salvation is all this there, because if there's infinite time and, uh, you know, it's libertarian free will means that there is that possibility, however slight, that infinite time times however slight of a possibility, ultimately, um, you know, it'll work out.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's great. Um, yeah, so just to address those points, yeah, we can agree to disagree, and in- um, if you'd like, can would you mind if I brought up an issue that we sort of touched on, we kind of stowed to the side? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd really I'd really like to hear, um you talked about we don't know God fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, uh, in the sort of super mundane in the super mundane primordial state before the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said claim that we never know God perfectly or fully or in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I guess the question then then becomes, so we don't know God fully, so we don't have uh, perfect knowledge of all of our residential choices, which seems to undermine the point that we don't really know mm. full residential choices. Does that make sense? I guess what I mean by, it,
1: yeah, yeah, what i say we don't know God fully means we don't know God's, uh, you know, we don't know the extent of God's greatness, we don't know uh, the extent of all his amazing attributes. And sure. all we have to know is that, God is a choice, and we can have a loving relationship with Him, and that's available for the soul. That's all that the soul needs to know to be able to make that residential choice.
2: True, but you use the and um, you use the term God there, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, if you'd understand what God is as the, the font of goodness, the infinite, the infinite font of goodness from which mm-hmm. all other goodness is merely derivative. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that sort of returns to the point of how could you possibly ever do so, you know, choose a way. And more so, how could you not ever fall away again out of curiosity? If you're curious the first time, mm-hmm. what prevents curiosity the second time? And You mentioned the hand to the fire thing. Um, mm-hmm. But as long as there's libertarian free will, mm-hmm. again, you could always reach back. It's however slight possibility you could always reach back. And mm-hmm. to me, that sort of makes sense, because you there are sort of worldly sinful pleasures. Maybe if I had just... Committed adultery one more time. Maybe if I just cheated one more person, uh, and you can always ask that question. So there's always that curiosity. The curiosity I don't feel like could ever be uh, mm-hmm. diminished. Um, and one one other point, just real quickly, you just, you talked about that universe, the logical poss- the logical possibility of universalism. I, I agree. I think that universalism mm-hmm. is logically possible. The question is is whether it's feasible for God mm-hmm. to create. Um, and that's how we sort of got into can you know it's logically possible that there'd be God not, you know, J.O. Mackey points this out, that there could be no evil. but That doesn't mean it's feasible for God to do it. In the same way, I'm making a very similar argument against universalism. Maybe it's not feasible. And that's why I said we ultimately have to go to skeptical theism, is we just, we're not mm-hmm. in a position, we're simply just not in a cognitive mm-hmm. and epistemic position to to truly mm-hmm. grasp that. Um, that's mm-hmm. just a sort of a quick rejoinder to that. But really, uh-huh. I'm curious what you have to say about that first point.
1: Yeah, um, I feel kind of uh, bad because I feel like I'm going to return to that fire analogy but there's another analogy it's like um, you know let's say <laughs> you're it's with your parents yeah you're with your parents and they're loving parents and you know you decide oh, I don't I can't stand with these people and you know you run off and then you run off into like some slum and then you know you get uh, stabbed you you get stabbed and you have to get hospitalized and in that hospital bed there's no air conditioning and you're just like in this whole miserable condition and you get so much pain that you're just like oh my god this is awful I re-, you know I wish I'd realized how nice I was living with my parents, and then you do finally return to your parents, you know, having gone through this painful experience, it's so painful on such a level um, that it really teaches you, like, yes, I've fully realized now that it's my best interest to be with God. Um, so, you know, there is always that chance um, to leave God, but it's, you know, God is uh, its amazingly blissful to be in His uh, presence, and even though that chance is there, it's like um, there's a possible chance, but there's not a realistic chance, I guess, because, uh, you know. But
2: there's infinite time, though, correct? uh,
1: In one sense, um, yeah, there's infinite time, but I guess uh, the difference difference that um, the kind of argument I use for universal salvation is that given infinite time, some souls will eventually be redeemed. I argue that the infinite time argument doesn't work for the, fall, the soul falling back because, objectively speaking, the soul is happier and realizes that it's happier with God um, once it's back with God. So even though there's infinite time, the soul has the knowledge um, and it's realized that he's happier with God, uh, and that's its objective happiness. Whereas for eternal damnation, it's not the, uh, the soul's objective happiness to be um, there away from God. Um, I guess it's to come back to that potato chip and the ice cream analogy. Like once you've tasted that ice cream, you just you realize it's better. Um, you have knowledge that it's better, and even though you have the possibility to make other choices, uh, ten out of ten times you wouldn't take it, even though you have the choice, um, because you know you've realized how good it is, and you know ten times out of ten you just naturally choose it um, because it's right. just what makes you happier. Um, right.
2: So here's the dilemma I'm, I'm I'm struggling with right now. So either There is a possibility, and given a sort of infinite period of time, that possibility must be realized. It's a similar argument you were making to me earlier, that if there's a non-zero probability, any non-zero probability given an infinite infinite amount of time will always be actualized. Mm -hmm. So, but you have to have that freedom... You, so you have to maintain this possibility because otherwise we aren't freely choosing to stay with God. Because if there is a zero percent probability now, all of a sudden, as you defined free will earlier, it's a choice between X and Y. So we don't no longer have that choice to choose Y to leave God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so so, do you see my dilemma here? Is if yeah yeah. Stay, okay, yeah.
1: Maybe it's a little bit tricky because uh, you know probabilities is uh, the way probabilities work out in. Uh, abstract math sense is maybe different than how they play out in a real tangible sense. So it's like, uh, you know, nine times, you know, like, maybe there's a a 1% probability that I decide um, it would just be better for me to uh, douse myself and set myself on fire. (laughs) Maybe there's a 1% chance that that could happen. Even 1% is kind of high. Uh, in In theory, there's a chance that I could always do it. Um, in theory uh, but then uh, in practice
2: I would never do that um, Right, you know, I would actually yeah, this is where I think you and I probably differ in how we define free will because I would say that that's a 0% probability so I'm pulling from Richard Taylor here is free will only acts on desires which is why, I mean, I give the illustration of not wanting to do a backflip right now there's a 0%, there's 0 desire for me to do that, mm-hmm. now that I speak of it there's a slight desire um, Yeah. But there's a zero percent desire normally to do that. Yeah. Therefore, I'm, there's no chance that I'm going to do a backflip mm-hmm. as much to your surprise as it is to mine. Um, yeah, and so, that's true.
1: I think it. Yeah, it might be a definitional thing because I would argue that free will—it means that you have the potential to make other choices, um, and the potential to make other choices. Uh, you know, I guess you can arguably say that. You can have a potential to make another choice and have it be a zero percent probability. Um,
2: Right. So yeah, if that's true, then could God have given us free will with a zero percent probability of us falling? Uh
1: huh. Um. I guess uh, in that case. I guess in that case, he couldn't have. Um, which does raise some interesting questions. Um, mm-hmm. but because,
2: yeah, freedom, freedom is valuable because mm-hmm. you can choose the alternative, right? But if there's a mm-hmm. 0%, you know, a 0% and we could still have free will, then God could have created a world that didn't fall, and yet we still have the valuable free will.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I guess... Um, What makes, yeah, I guess the reason that the soul doesn't fall once it comes back is uh, it's already made that choice, so it would never uh, do it again. So I guess God can actualize a world, God can't actualize a world where no self ever will want to um, never fall and still all selves would have free will. Um, That makes, I guess God can't actualize a world where no selves would fall because that would mean that selves don't really have free will but he could actualize a world where uh, those cells that do decide to fall have learned their lesson and from that uh, decide to never fall.
0: I'd say it'd be useful to draw a distinction between innocence and wisdom. Like, so before mm-hmm. we've fallen, in, we're innocent. But once we've fallen and yeah. we, turn, we now have a wisdom which prevents us from making the same stupid mistake twice.
2: And I think that's—I uh, think we've moved uh, pretty close, actually, to my theodicy, honestly. Because remember, I said—I I remember Adam and Eve are innocent; they're not morally perfect. Yeah, uh, I and I, I drew that distinction. distinction. Yeah. So, I appreciate yeah. that because I think—I think—I think the more the more we push each other, the closer we become. Honestly, it's—it's it's
0: quite odd. Yeah, um, <laughs> I
2: mean,
0: yeah. we've got that yeah, intention it's... of reincarnation, and, and we feel like there's key things which can't be explained unless you bring in reincarnation.
2: Right. Right. And I think, I think what the, the same, if, if I can interpret the, the debate so far, it seems like the, the role reincarnation plays for you is the role that virtue plays in my system.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: If that, is that, yeah, that seems I to think, be the, the big just.
1: Uh, yeah. I think you can, I mean, there's some disanalogous elements, but yeah, I think yeah. Lo- roughly speak.
2: Uh, yeah, they're obviously disanalogous, yeah. but the sort of role that they play, especially like how can we fall? How can we be in a pristine state? Uh, fall and what, what cultivates us back is mm-hmm. the experience of wisdom so that wisdom is a virtue um, mm-hmm. so there is a role of virtue for you in that but the karmic system is the system through which it's done whereas in Christianity it's in the life it's in communion with God the virtue development that does it so karma plays plays a role that virtue development in the communion with God and within the church mm-hmm. does in the Christian life
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah yeah
1: so yeah. I So go ahead Oh, you can go ahead.
2: Oh, I was just gonna say, I've been, I've been uh, asking a lot of the questions too. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Um, that's a
1: good point. Um, did we ever get to?
2: Uh,
1: I think we got to the point on natural evil. Uh,
2: yeah, I think it serves a very similar role. Uh, although for you, it seems like it's more grounded on the individual. Like if, so for instance, if a tree fell in the forest and landed on you, um, that would be sort of karmic justice, or in some way that's going to be, that that would have ultimate good in your particular life. Mm. And if I were to ask what, you would say, I don't know, skeptical theism, right? We can't know that you're not in an epistemic position. Whereas for me, it's the tree fell in the forest and you died. I would say that I would have some good, so it's a bit more Mm. generic, that that there still is a sort of determination of Mm. this evil act for good. Yeah. and then, then, I, then I would duke to skeptical theism. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I guess one thing, so, in your theodicy does, is there several lives, or is there one life?
2: It is, uh, to quote Hebrews, it is appointed for all men to die once and then face judgment. Mm-hmm.
1: So what makes a system where there's one life superior to one where souls, uh, souls have multiple chances of uh, learning these lessons? you know, why couldn't someone just reincarnate as a human and uh, learn lessons that would make them accept Christ's uh, offer of salvation?
2: Uh, the reincarnation system? Yeah. Why like is there a reincarnation system? Yeah. Um, because I don't think identity works that way, but this is, I didn't, I actually thought about bringing this mm-hmm. up, but I didn't want to get into really mm-hmm. difficult metaphysical Probably issues. reincarnation um, would be
0: like a whole nother debate. <laughs> <laughs> it would be. It would
2: be, and that's why I actually, uh, I, like, you, you talked about other problems with, like, the karmic, and, and uh, one of them I was thinking was, well, we have different views of what identity is. Whereas yours, it seems, I don't want to call it a substance dualism, but it's much more of a divergence of the self from the embodied state than I feel comfortable with um, mm. as a Christian. But again, that's so, just that's a complete. So metaphysical why don't we just
0: stick to the explanatory power of the different the- theologies in terms of the problem of evil? Uh and leave the metaphysics aside for another discussion.
2: Right, okay, absolutely. Um, but, on a different issue, uh, you did bring up the point, and maybe I can return to this, you brought up the point of why certain people, you know, the poor and the rich, right? And I, my point mm-hmm. back to that was is within the ultimate scope of things, you know, Christ many times says blessed are the poor. You know, in Luke he says blessed are the mm-hmm. poor. Um, that there is an elevation of the poor, the people of this life, because it and and I'll actually pull a point from mm. you that it is the suffering that allows us to cultivate virtue. So I'm kind of pulling a t- card from your deck that the karmic system mm. developing virtue. I guess, um,
1: yeah, I guess that that argument doesn't really uh, address the problem, but it just flips the role of the rich and the poor. So now the rich, why then? I think mm. you even mentioned this earlier. Then, I did. Why are then why are the rich, uh, you know, why does God put people in certain circumstances where they're it's just going to be less conducive for their? Yeah, uh, really.
2: yeah. I think generically, why are some people more privileged than others in the overall system? Mm-hmm. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is ultimately within the Christian system. This ultimately comes down to the narrative. Christianity is mm-hmm. very narrative driven. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it sounds like your system is as well. Um, and people are actors within the narrative, and you mm-hmm. can't have everyone sort of having the same role. What makes the narrative mm-hmm. work, what allows it to go forward, is the interaction of the characters. And because of that, mm-hmm. in order to, for God, and uh, from, from my understanding, for God to have sort of this sort of enacted narrative where people can not even mm-hmm. encounter, there's going to be just logically there has to be people who are more privileged than others. So there's going to be people who are born in. Mm-hmm. Places where the gospel is preached, where it's, there's going to be people who are born, where it's not preached. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I think this all measures in, because in Luke chapter 12, it talks about those who are, do not know will be beaten with less straps than those who did, did, know, did know. So obviously, mm-hmm. there's a fairness to this. You know, there's, there's even been an argument that the people who don't ever hear the gospel, they were prevented from hearing it lest they reject it and be punished all the more for having rejected ultimate goodness and telling God no. Mm-hmm. Um, there's mm-hmm. there's a, definitely an argument there, and that, 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 that helps solve the problem of the un-evangelist. Um, but that goes to your point of why are some people more privileged than not Is this is, we're part of it? We're part of an enacted story mm. and the pieces all have to fall into place for any of mm-hmm. it all to make sense, so maybe it's just not logically possible for everyone to have equal privilege, some people mm-hmm. will be there when the gospel is proclaimed, some people will not be
0: how mm-hmm. uh, do you feel about Does that the make program, sense? problem uh, solution for the problem of the unevangelized, which is that at the time of death they hear the gospel and they can decide to accept it and go to heaven instantly
2: you know I have heard this um, there's nothing in scripture that, that was my to question nobody's to... ever offered
0: me any verses for it no there's there's nothing to
3: sort
2: of um, uh, there's nothing that sort of goes toward it that you can right, probably from scripture because I have
0: philosophical issues with that you know if, we, if someone lives their whole life and then right at the end of it they get one instant where they hear the gospel and, and that's the moment that decides perfection what was the point of their life
2: yeah, I could still say, say there's a point, but uh, to, to add to what you're saying, though, I really I really think it would also cheapen cheapen the role of the church, right? <laughs> God has appointed humans on Earth to be co-regents, to bring this message, and that's sort of the primary task, is the evangelism the bringing of the good news to the world. But if God's just going to do that all on its own anyway, then what's the point of us doing it, you know? Exactly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, so, yeah. yeah so, I, I, I can see it. I mean, it solves certain issues, but at the same time, it also creates certain issues. So, yeah.
3: Mhm.
1: I guess how is um. So you mentioned different roles, but I guess you know in a play, people generally choose the roles. Um, I mean maybe not in all cases, but in a, you know there are there can be cases where players get to choose their roles. Um, but if people are thrust into roles that they uh, didn't choose, and those roles involve more suffering, then it seems impartial for God to thrust more suffering unto certain souls than to others. Mm-hmm.
3: Whereas in a right. system
1: of karma, um, and according to a karmic conception, souls choose their own destiny, so they're never uh, unfairly thrusted with suffering that they didn't really choose.
2: Right. Right. And here's, and here's the problem. As soon as, you know, the idea of God creating us and then giving us a choice whether to participate, you're already part of the narrative as soon as you do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Because the play, to, to bring the analogy back down to earth, the play is creation. So, for God to mm-hmm. create someone and say, "Do you want this role?" They're already serving a role because they're part of creation. Mm-hmm. So, there's no backing out of the play. If you're part of, a, if you're in creation, you're part of the play.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Does that make sense?
0: We have an analogy um, commonly used, which is you use your free will to get on an airplane. Once you're on the airplane, you've, you're determined. Certain things are no longer a choice. You have to ride that flight until you arrive at your destination. Once you're on the airplane, mm-hmm. you can make certain choices. So. Yeah, that sort of relates to what you're saying in terms of you choose to enter the, the play
2: yeah and that's sort of that, that's sort of yeah because I can see that in the karmic system because you choose whether to get on the airplane or not and that's sort of the choice between to leave God or not to leave God correct
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, and also on a smaller yeah. scale like you know if you choose to do something in this life then in your next life something happens to you as a consequence. That's, that's something, that's a, mm-hmm. a sequence of actions which was created by a previous action you did, right. which takes away some of your free will, just like getting on a plane takes away some of your free will.
2: Yeah, and the disanalogy the, the, there is there is no sort of, because you could sort of get behind that riding the plane uh, to the choice itself, right? But the analogy I'm drawing is there's no getting behind that play in this sense, right? The play is all creation, all choice, all people. You can't stand outside of that and still be a created being. So you have to be a part of the play. There's no choice to be in or out of the play. As soon as you're in the play, you're in the play, right? Mm-hmm. Once the play exists, you, you, you are in it. Does
0: that mm-hmm. make sense? I know we're, yeah. pu- we're pushing this analogy pretty far. <laughs> so yeah,
3: you, I guess the difference... Are, are you is,
0: using uh, that to explain, say, you know, children born with cancer or something?
2: Yes. Yes. So what? I, and I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare bring that up because of the, the whole emotional problem mean, of yeah, evil. Without going back a to
0: this is not the conversation you have with them. <laughs> Obviously, no. <laughs> it
2: which is why I, I would always juke back to Christ yeah. and the idea of meaning and suffering. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, because the play itself, every character has a meaning, has a purpose, and so maybe this is to go back to this exhausted analogy. Um, uh, every part, every point of it. You, you you think of like a mosaic or one of. Have you seen those pictures where it's like every, they take they take people's little faces and they construct a larger face out of it? Mm-hmm. The Christian narrative is every person's face is that, mm-hmm. and the the overall construction is the face of Christ, which is the ultimate meaning of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so everyone ultimately plays a role, even in their suffering. So suffering always has meaning. And to me, that's that's what. Prevents suffering from becoming evil is the fact that meaning, and then I return to my childbirth analogy. Mm-hmm. I guess, uh
1: yeah. So we're, we're similar in that as soon as you come to this world, you have to, you know, you're in the play. Uh, mm-hmm. The difference with karma is that you're in the play, but you get to choose your role. Mm-hmm. Whereas without karma, you know, you're in the play, and that's how it is. But you don't get to really choose your role. Right. So. Uh, I guess how is not being able to choose your role more superior than a worldview where you are able to choose your role?
2: Right. Um, and the question, it's its not necessarily for me um, a question of superiority. The question is, is, is a possibility and a feasibility, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it feasible? Uh, it, or is it overall better in that system that you get to choose your role? And to me, I'm going to go pull back to our common shared humanity, that our responsibility is for one, that the overall story itself has ultimate meaning because of cooperation. So you talked about, I brought up Richard repair pretty derogatorily earlier, uh, earlier mm-hmm. but he brings the point that the fact that there are, you know, some people who are more privileged and not, and people who are less privileged, that allows for the possibility of charity. Charity could not exist outside of that.
3: Mm-hmm. And that
2: overall makes the play a better play. Now there are, of course, evil actions done and all that sort of stuff, which I would appeal to other parts of it. Mm-hmm.
3: But I would also say that the narrative itself is very is built up. You know, courage,
2: the, the mm-hmm. virtue of courage, would not exist if there was nothing to be courageous against. That there wasn't something to stand up to.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you, can, you can have that, yeah. and add into it this layer that the only that the people are suffering because of earning it or deserving it as a consequence of actions mm-hmm. they did to, to get themselves there, like alvin Plantinga gives the you know the solution for famous solution for the problem of evil based on free will that because there's free will these things are going to happen and it's just part of the the baggage you know it it just goes along with it it can't be avoided but um that falls short because superior to a world where somebody can freely choose to punch somebody in the face is a world where somebody can only freely choose to punch somebody in the face who has the karma to or deserve that action to be done to them, mm-hmm. who has themselves done something similar to somebody else and needs that experience mm-hmm. in order to teach them compassion.
2: Mm-hmm. And here's the, here's the issue, right? Because you still want to say that person freely chose to punch that person in the face, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But again, we can't say God can control all free will of action. So if God can set up—you've you you've got a system that's so complex that God can set up that no person is ever punched in the face— without ever having deserved it, right? Yeah. But he can't stop 10%, of a whole 10% and billions of people from falling. So the system seems so wonderfully aligned that it can allow for there never to be one injustice that wasn't karmically sort of set up, mm-hmm. but it can't prevent a large, you know, billions from actually making that same free will decision to fall, which sort of seems inimical to God's overall plan. I'd, I'd say... Does that make sense? I, I get that. So it seems like in one system, the system is very complete. There's, you know, it's like a very airtight system. No, you know, no person's ever punched without having deserved it. Uh, and how can you also say that yeah. there was a vast majority that felt?
0: Uh, I'd, I'd say two things. I guess it's... On one uh, you, can, you can choose an action, but then be delayed in being able to actuate it. you know someone's decided they want to do something but then they're not able to do it at the time and the god arranges that they can only do it at the time when it's the opportunity to do it for for whose karma it is. but i'd also say that we have a karma to be around certain people and once we're around those people then their free will can push and pull on us a little bit you know like you know i might say my children have the karma to be my kid but you know i could go downhill as a parent or I could, I could improve as a parent and that could be over and above their karma or below their karma, perhaps. What do you think, Adi? So karma is
2: not completely, it's not a complete system. So there, there is a possibility that you can improve, like, let's say, let's say your children might deserve, I don't, I, I don't want to say that, your children might deserve something, mm. but you, because of your sort of karma, you can prevent that from occurring, correct? So you can improve your karma for them. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah,
0: well, I, what I'd be saying there is the karma is to be around a certain mentality of person. But that person can sort of mm-hmm. push and pull mm-hmm. a little bit within that. Mm-hmm. Would you agree, Eddie? Yeah.
1: Um, well, I guess my... Uh, I actually want to come back to one of the original uh, points. So God can actualize this really complex karmic system, but he can't actualize the 10%. I would say yeah. that... Um, you know, the karmic systems is basically it's a, a system where every soul gets their uh, due results. And it's not a logical impossibility to create a system where people get their rewards. Uh, I would say that that's conceptually actually much easier than uh, a system where, you know, you're creating this world where people have free will but they can't misuse it. That, creating a world where no cells fall, souls fall is a logical impossibility. Creating a mm-hmm. world where... Uh, people get their the results of their activities is not a logical impossibility. It's very complex, but it's not a logical impossibility. Impos- right. And also, with that karmic system, uh, there's sort of this assumption that it's this close... Uh, you know, there's still scope for free will in the karmic system, too. Uh, the main point is that God doesn't override our free will, and by creating this system where there's karmic mechanisms that account for everything, he's not negating free will by creating this system. Um sort of, Arjuna was mentioning, you know, he basically makes it so that every action has a consequence. But within that system, that every action has a consequence, you know, people still have free will, you know, something Mm -hmm. can happen to them, they have a choice on how they respond to that. So the karmic, karma doesn't necessarily negate our ability to respond to our choice, uh, our reactions.
2: Yeah, okay. Um, So... I wouldn't say it negates the free will, and I guess that wasn't ever my argument. My, my, my point was is that the the system is sort of set up in a, in a very middle-knowledge-esque way where mm-hmm. no one ever gets punched. No one is ever in a position where they are punched unless their karma had prior deserved that. That takes a sort of orchestrating of the universe t- to a minuscule level, right? That there is never any sort of undeserved punishing yeah, Punishing. It's definitely on. incredibly complex um, and
0: sophisticated thing to orchestrate. Incredibly complex, no right? Mm-hmm. But
2: speak that out one side of your mouth, and of course it's logically possible, but then, then again, so is a perfect universe. Um, and that was J.L. Mackey's point. And even the rebuttal to that didn't say it was logically impossible, but that it might be feasibly impossible, given the nature of free will. Um, so I guess my reply back to them is it doesn't seem like that can compute well with a 10% fall. If God can... can create a system of dominoes falling to where no domino ever fell out of place within the mundane world, why doesn't he have any sort of even close analogous control in the super-mundane world? Mm-hmm. Uh... I guess,
1: uh... It comes down to... Uh... You can't really control a self you can't control a to where they uh, are sold to where they just can't uh, misuse their free will. Um,
2: Right, but then how does that not play into the mundane world where people might get punched undeservedly? uh, So that's the sort of juggle that I'm feeling right now, is how mm -hmm. do you juggle that?
1: Juggle? um, I guess, so uh the question is how could god um basically not prevent these ten percent of souls from falling
2: no, not nece- oh yeah sorry mm-hmm. yeah it's it 's not necessarily that because you i think you very rightly points to uh free will and the incapacity to control free will in all circumstances and all situations. Because earlier mm. in the debate, I asked why did he, he stop at 10%, and he said, you know, certain circumstances, mm-hmm. freedom, there's that possibility. And so that 10% is still a significant portion. It's billions of souls. Um, and yet, God is ex- exercising a level of control here in the mundane world that's, mm-hmm. that's completely disanalogous uh, uh, of making sure evil is never, ever done to the undeserved. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I guess it's, in one sense, a level of control, but in one sense, it's like a law. Um, like the law of karma, it's, um, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, I guess, to me, those are disanalogous points that, uh, the law of karma, like a, a universe structured by certain, uh, reciprocal, like, um, karmic mechanisms versus Mm
3: -hmm. a
1: universe where, uh, souls just can't fall together. I guess... In the case of souls falling, the difficulty lies in preventing souls from um, uh basically the difficulty is that you're you can't coerce souls into uh not doing something while giving them free will That's mm-hmm. the difficulty there. The difficulty in creating a world where souls have uh every single action has a consequence um, it doesn't require it's very complex yes, but it doesn't uh in one sense, it's not, um, it's, exi- it's exceedingly complex, but it never takes away a soul's free will, so in that sense, it's never a logical possi- uh, impossibility. Um.
2: Right, but neither is the idea that no soul ever freely chooses to not to leave God. I mean, we could always imagine the soul, we could imagine the souls all always choosing to stay with God, even mm-hmm. while having the possibility to not do that. So logical possibility kind of cuts both ways here. Mm-hmm. So the person who punched the person who deserved, they had the freedom to not do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet God so orchestrated that that it didn't happen, you know, that it never happens. And the billions and trillions and quadrillions of times it happened. Um, So God has a hundred percent success rate there, but he only has a 90 percent success rate. Um, Yeah, I guess I'm—and you you point to a law, but I I, I guess I'm curious— you know, like a law of karma, why couldn't there be a similar law that orchestrated heaven to where it still always freely chose to go if God. Anytime they might be tempted to or curious about that, there was some law that brought them back and mm-hmm. yet didn't interfere with their free will in the same, the same way that law, the law of karma doesn't interfere with our free will. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
2: I guess, yeah, there's like a, uh, I guess I, I don't know, I, guess I find
1: myself repeating the same. Point I'm with sorry. The, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, with the souls falling, the, the difficulty is that, um, you know, God, basically it's, uh, you, coer- you know, you can't not coerce souls to do what they want in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't stop a soul from acting on its desire. That's kind of the bottom line. The soul has a desire and, you know, God creates or, you know, produces the soul with that particular desire because it's a necessity for it to also love God. It has to have that desire to leave God in order to have the desire to freely choose God in a a loving capacity. So, um, whereas with karma, uh, why doesn't God arrange or make it so that selves can just have things happen to them against their uh, free will? Uh, You know, someone, they get punched and it wasn't their karma to get punched.
0: I'm Um, wondering how many of these questions don't cut both ways. Like, as... as and they may. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and feel free. And feel free to uh, to quote me. You know, like, uh, say you also have a problem with this. You know.
0: Well, I'd say that you know, the souls being able to just remain in perfection and never leave it and never choose anything else. That that, that same question could be asked of the Christian, the Odyssey.
2: Right, which is why I, uh, uh, I appeal to virtue quite often, the idea that freedom, you know, and I use the bicycle analogy, that ultimately the choice, there is a sort of solidification by becoming, by once we know God and love God and see God for who he truly is, that sort of solidifies our virtue for him. To know mm-hmm. God in his infinite goodness is to know that everything else only is good because of him, and so you can only desire other things through God in that sense. If that makes sense. He's everything else is just sort of my tiny mirror, mirroring God. And you'll ne- once you see the, the the true image, the true image, you'll never desire the mirror again because that's not the real thing. So there is a sort of solidification of the will there, um, mm-hmm. and that's why I also drew up the, the analogy of the mother. That sort of we consider that a sort of pure form of love, a, a love that does mm-hmm. is no longer chosen, but is it's just it's part of her nature. She couldn't choose not to do it, and that's the sort of end, the telos, the goal of our love with God, is it's a love not chosen. That now we, we have the choice to accept mm-hmm. the But as we make mm-hmm. that choice, become it becomes us.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I guess, yeah, we did kind of mention that the similar thing happens in uh, the Hare Krishna framework where the soul, through, you say virtue, we would sort of say, maybe learning its lessons, um, I don't know what the t- equivalent would be, but there's a sort of virtue equivalent where the soul uh, does sort of learn that uh, its highest good is to be with God. And uh, maybe the, you know, I guess, I like Urgent's point of the delayed actualization. Um, God can make it so that souls never leave, uh, in one sense, because the souls ultimately come back, so no one leaves permanently. Mm -hmm. But why souls have to go through this kind of painstaking process, um, I would argue that, you know, it's, the souls just, you know, in order to, uh, it wants to explore its choices, and it's the genuine choice that, uh, as I mentioned, you know, can go away from God, but what's, uh, you know, God is so merciful that um, he may not be able to produce a soul that uh, can, have, can, out of innocence, uh, he, God can't produce a soul that uh, out of innocence wouldn't leave him, uh, but he can, make, he can produce a soul that can learn lessons through um, you know being in this world that he can produce a soul that can learn the lessons and never leave him.
2: Gotcha.
0: Yep. Another um, analogy that might be useful is uh, you know different what Prabhupada talks about different types of intelligence you know first class intelligence, they receive good instruction mm-hmm. and you know let's so say that you tell the child, "Don't touch the fire, you'll get burnt. First class intelligence they hear once and they learn the lesson. Second class intelligence, mm. they watch somebody else get burnt. And then they think okay i better not do what they did i don't want to get burnt so they hear the instruction they see it and then they think mm-hmm. okay then they learn the lesson third class intelligence yeah uh, they themselves burn their hand and then they learn the lesson mm-hmm. and then 10th class intelligence they burn the hand repeatedly yeah. repeatedly almost right. to infinity and then eventually they learn okay fire burns let me not do this so it's has god yeah, yeah a, soul, a soul choosing to leave it's kind of like that it's like most people actually don't choose to leave most souls are intelligent enough mm-hmm. to remain, but yeah. you know, so is it logically possible yeah. for God to create souls, give them free will, and have them all be first class intelligence and not just, you know you know, it's a bit be mm-hmm. like you'd be taking away a kind of free will that they could choose to not listen to good instruction.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
2: if I can switch topics, because I think, I think we're completely in agreement on that. That's, that to me is just, mm-hmm. that's just virtue, right? You, mm-hmm. you learn the fire in virtue of having done that, you know, there's, a, there's an etymological similarity there um, mm-hmm. that I'm, I, think, I think it's really getting at, uh, a theology I think we share. Um, I would like to um, get back to the idea of what place do you see, and this is just more of a general question, mm-hmm. than, and it's not an mm-hmm. objection, But me as a Christian, what place do you see for grace in your system? The idea of unmerited favor Mm. on God's part, because everything seems yeah. What 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 place is there for grace? Yeah, yeah. So the the merit
1: is that God reciprocates with you. The grace is that you get far more than what you deserve. Mm. So uh, you know, let's say I call out God's name. I call out Krishna. That's uh, our name for God. You know the. Merit is that Krishna reciprocates with my devotion. You know, he, uh, you know, I do something and God does something in return. So in one sense, there's merit. But the grace is that, you know, I just do a little simple act. And be, by me calling out Krishna, you know, Krishna does so much more for me. You know, he does. I just do a simple act calling out Krishna. But Krishna, you know, takes me into his lap and takes care of me like a uh, child. And really, um, you know, we have a saying, you take one step towards God. Krishna, he takes ten steps towards you. So, the fact that God is, uh, you know, the one step that you take and God's taking steps in response to that is merit. But those extra nine steps is grace.
2: Okay. Um, In that sense, there's actually an analog to be drawn between you and Catholic theology. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you see the one difference, and this is where I might ask, is in the Christian system, both Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, that first step is always, even that first step is enabled by God himself. Um, is that a a difference between us, or would you you agree that grace itself, that unmerited favor, Mm -hmm. even in the very possibility of approaching God, comes from God?
1: Yeah, we would agree, um, in this. Well, our view is interesting. Um, so, God's grace comes through his devotees, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, great figures throughout the years, or just devotees in general, and the way that God's grace comes to people is, um, The God's devotees, uh, they make friends with other devotees, they show mercy to the innocent, and they avoid those who are envious. So if someone's innocent, uh, you know, one will get the mercy of God through a devotee in some capacity. Yeah. So the grace is always there. You know, the grace comes first in one sense, because the grace is through the devotees, and the devotees are always willing to share the grace, and God will even send devotees down um, to send that grace. Uh, So the grace is, one sense comes first, because it's always there and it's being freely distributed. But in one sense, uh, so that's there, but the merit comes from the fact that we have to be receptive to it. Mm -hmm. So um, I would, yeah, God's grace is first, but in one sense, our own willingness to receive it also has to be there.
2: Right, okay. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, Yes, your own willingness. So there still is an active we might say, an act of principle, an act of power that you contribute to the good act? Mm-hmm. Would you would say that, uh, okay, that might be a slight difference um, between the Christian? Yeah. It's, it's, it is slight. So in Christianity, that's known as synergism as opposed to monergism. And most Christians, not all, are, are monergists. They think that even that enabling power it is God himself working in you. And the human agent sort of, my free agency is to step aside and allow God to do that. I have the ability. Mm-hmm. My my only contribution to the salvation is the sin that made it possible, and me allowing God to do it. So I could always resist God. I could only mm-hmm. ever resist God. Um, mm-hmm. um, but then that this brings up a further question, of which is if you if you're contributing to it, uh, if I can return to my question of forgiveness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is in some sense are you contributing to forgiveness? Um. Mm
1: it's sort of like uh, God is in one sense uh, already forgiven because the fact that he's allowing his grace to be shared in the first place is a sign that Mm -hmm. he's forgiven us Um, yeah so in one sense we're not really contributing God's already forgiven but uh, our contribution comes in uh, maybe taking uh, hold of God's forgiveness
2: gotcha Um, so in a sense if I can push this just a bit you you do see us as contributing to forgiveness
1: um God's forgiveness and his willingness to have us come back to him is not something that we contribute to in the sense of you know God is always willing to forgive us and take us back
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, what where our effort lies is being able to accept God's offer of grace
3: mm-hmm.
1: that he's already made uh that is you know as soon you know. You can one sense say as soon as we left God he uh forgave us and wanted us back. Uh, you know, his his compassion is unending, so anything less would be um, you know, not suited to the nature of God. So his forgiveness and willing to take us back is I guess uh happens first and uh like I mentioned before, our contribution only comes in the sense that God uh, God's forgiven us already and now we're finally ex- uh, taking up on uh taking him up on uh
2: kind of offer more fully um in that sense say say i punched someone in a past life right
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, um does any sort of evil must the karmic system seems like a law though that somebody must sort of punch me back i mean i know this is crude but um
0: well the, the way we talk as karma is talked about in the bhagavatam and so on is that the karma is there but if if you change your mentality Without coming to God, the karma still plays out because it's like the laws of material nature, just like a law of physics plays out. Kay. But if you mm-hmm. come to God and change your mentality, then God may take that karma away, or He may use a karmic pattern that you have anyway to teach you other lessons. So, t- yeah, t- uh, there, there is uh, what
2: in, in coming to God. What, what, what does that mean in in the system? Uh, How does it means that play out
1: out of your. Out of your own accord, you do an act of devotion. So chanting God's name. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what we're known as the Hare Christians. You know, we chant God's <laughs> name. That's one of our uh, main uh, spiritual practices. But, you know, serving a devotee of God, um, reading scripture, uh, dedicating one's life to God, and, you know, even dedicate, you know, dedicating one's money to yeah. God. Anything done with an act of devotion towards God.
2: I, and i think i think what i've i've, I've been trying to push oh towards God. is is that truly you know I, i'm coming at this from a christian perspective but is that truly forgiveness then if is if you have to in some way there's a there's a meritorious action given right so in christian theology you have been forgiven christ died for mm-hmm. the sins of the world um mm-hmm. and john 16 makes clear that the only sin you're ever indicted for is how do you respond to jesus mm-hmm. um you know that the, uh, uh, they they now stand condemned because they did not accept him. It's the only sin listed, the only sin you that you are indicted for is what did you do with Christ? Mm-hmm. Um, because you stand forgiven, you know already, already, alri- always already forgiven in the Christian system, and that to me that's that spells forgiveness to me. That's that's what forgiveness is, and that to me seems like a superior, uh, like idea of forgiveness for God is that you don't have to sort of merit it in some even in a small way, even at that, that one step is not even there. You don't even need to take the one step. God has taken a hundred, a hundred steps to, to you, and you'd you merely have to stand there and receive them. Yeah. Well, even
1: in a Christian context, you can say that, uh, you can't really shy away from taking that step because that you at least have to take the step of, uh, accepting and accepting Christ's offer of salvation.
2: Yeah. Uh, and this is where I brought up monergism, and I sort of flew by. The idea of accepting, we don't think of that as an active thing mm-hmm. we contribute, right? Mm-hmm. We think about that. Imagine, the analogy, uh, the, class, uh, uh, the classic analogy is imagine the city gates that are opened, and
0: mm-hmm. you're a guard,
2: and mm-hmm. a city's army is coming in. If you do mm-hmm. absolutely nothing, they're going to take over. Mm-hmm. The only thing you, the only action, uh, if you do action, Actually contribute to something, it would be to close the gate and to prevent them from coming in. And mm-hmm. you should think about it, salvation the same way. You by doing nothing is what allows God to come in. Your only active power that you can contribute is to refuse God. So even even in the act of acceptance, it's always God acting. If that makes sense. Yeah, and that's what um, makes forgiveness so so radical in the Christian idea. Is this is the pure passivity of humans in it. And to me that 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 feels like a superior form is that you're not having to earn this forgiveness anyway. And forgiveness mm-hmm. to me, it seems like it's unearned. It's completely unmerited. It's complete it's not partially unmerited. It's completely unmerited.
3: hmm
2: Does that make sense? I, yeah, yeah. I guess um I know we've branched into soteriology, but I think it's all connects. Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah,
1: I guess in one sense that uh the army coming in and the you being the guard, that's continually going on um, in the con- uh, Hare Krishna context. I mean, God is basically, at every moment, uh, wanting us to come back. I guess what makes uh, the distinction is that we sort of have to voluntarily accept that to a greater extent than in Christian context. And I guess that's, uh, in one sense, I guess that's maybe where notions of free will come into play. Um, maybe it depends on how you conceptualize free will uh, I guess you know to go back to God the soul has to really want to go back to God so um, I don't know, I don't think it's necessarily I think God's willingness to forgive is unlimited and it's always there but if God can't force us to come back to him unless we have uh, our own will to do so if that will is there you know, it's, uh, you know, God's willing to take us back but he can't force us against our will to accept an offer Right, and I would agree
0: with that. I think we we look at it in terms of more like the state of consciousness. So that there's, you need to have a certain mentality in order to actually go back to Godhead. And if you don't have that mentality, then you won't fit in there and you won't even be happy. And, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: that's a point. Yeah, that's a point. Like, you know, let's say we were to be with God um, – you know, if we still, on a some level, wanted to be the center, or we still had some, you know, personal selfish desires we had, we wouldn't be happy with God and His kingdom. Right. You know, if we wanted to go to Disney World or something, uh, and we were in the spiritual world with God, you know, we wouldn't be happy ourselves. So it has to be <laughs> a hearted Yeah, it has to be a wholehearted desire from within ourselves to really uh, be there ourselves. You know, even if God extends His hand out and drags us. You know, if we have other desires or we have other uh, intentions, then, you know, mm-hmm. even if drug personally drags us to his kingdom, with guarantee is that, that we'd be happy.
2: Yeah, there there's a logical problem also that I'm driving from this, which is God is the font of all, all goodness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I somehow actively contribute from my own uh, will in that action, if I'm somehow a source of energy, to use the old Christian term, um, mm. Apart from God, then I am contributing a source of goodness that's independent of God. So that's why I'm really stressing hardcore that you know mm. the very the, even the very goodness that we have is is merely God acting in and through us to mm. use that Christian language. Yeah, because that's just well,
1: a logical outcome. Yeah. For you. yeah. Well, in the Gita, Krishna says he's the ability in man. So uh, you could argue that the goodness we have is actually ah. a part of God's goodness itself. The goodness we have only is there because God has given it to us. And, you know, our goodness is not distinct from God's goodness in the sense that he has uh, enabled us to have the goodness to begin with. So maybe that's well, so one perspective. Another perspective is, oh. yeah. Another perspective is maybe that, um, uh, you know, if we're in a dark well, uh, God has extended out a rope, and his infinite goodness is that, you know, the rope pulling us out, it's completely his goodness. Um, you know, whether it's an extrinsic form of goodness for us to just grab onto that rope. Um, you know, I would say that it's maybe not uh, so much of an act of goodness to hold onto that rope, which brings us out of that well, but to sort of our own free will. The goodness isn't the rope. The, our own endeavor is just simply an acceptance of that goodness.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think our ontology is a little bit different, too. Like We, we talk about the soul mm-hmm. It, the soul is described in Bhagavad Gita as being a part and parcel of God. So we've got the same quality of God, but just a minute quantity. So like you take a drop of water from the ocean and it's salty. Mm-hmm. It's the same quality as the ocean, but it's different in quantity. You, you can't use a drop of water for what you could use an ocean for. You need God, but we we have a minute quantity. And um, so we still have, we do have some goodness in the, in the sense that we are a small expression of God ourselves. Um, and also, I think that there is kind of a, a logical problem with it too, that, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought, I don't remember which, which, what point I was going to make.
2: Well, why are you think of that? I, I will say that that is, uh, I mean, there are Christians, so there's actually a big divide within Christian theology, which one you might be privy to, uh, between the personalists, the theistic personalists and the classical theists. Um, mm-hmm. have, you, have you heard this distinction? Uh no actually. So yeah, it's it's um so so I've been arguing from a very classical theist perspective with bits of theistic personalism thrown in, so I'm a self-contradiction in that sense. Um but the idea that you've expressed is closer to theistic personalism. This idea that yeah, God creates us, but we're sort of our own little packets of good you know, like, you take a cup of water from the ocean and it sort of exists on its own. Whereas classical theism, that's sort of what you read throughout most of the tradition, is this idea of, yeah, you can take a cup of water and you have that cup of water, but it never really leaves the ocean. So you can sort of talk about the cup of water on itself, maybe it's like, you set it to where the rim sort of is on top of the ocean, but it always is a part of that greater ocean of goodness. So that, that cup of water is always sort of within and and receives from that ocean. Uh, Everything that it is, if that makes sense. And that's 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 a very vague and difficult way of describing how goodness is received. But within a classical theist tradition, uh, there's a doctrine called participation, which is we exist only by participation in God. Our very being is sort of derived from God himself, not sort of independently, but sort of like the rays of a sun shining out. So that's why that's why I've been stressing so hard this idea of of grace, forgiveness, and goodness being completely and only in God. Because if we think about God as the font of all goodness, then um, we can't then say that we somehow do goods independent of God.
0: Um, So I I just think the point I was going to make is I think if there's a logical problem with it too, like if you lower the rope down to well, is it possible to pull somebody out of the well without them needing to hold on? Um, This this is sort of a, 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 I've heard Christian apologists say this is a unique thing to Christianity where they say it's all grace But actually if you look throughout the world religions you'll see that in many traditions you'll find some people in the camp that it's all grace um and the analogy that's given you know is are we like the baby monkey who has to hold on to the back of the monkey while she swings through the trees and if, if she falls off the baby monkey dies sometimes or are we like the the kitten who gets carried in the mouth of the mother kitten of the mother cat and um our, our Vaishnava Siddhanta states that it's, it's a mixture of the two. That it's God's mercy, but it's also our effort. And I think to say that it's all grace raises a logical problem. If it's nothing but grace, why doesn't just everybody get saved by fear? Mm, yeah. By divine fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so there's something we <laughs> need to do to position ourselves to receive the mercy. Like sometimes Parapod would say, the rain even falls on the ocean. The ocean doesn't need the mercy. In a similar way, God... It makes his mercy available to everybody but only some people take it and like if somebody's got a drug habit you can offer you can throw endless amounts of money at them giving them rehab and trying to support them but if that person doesn't make an effort themselves there's no way they can be cured of their problem and i think Mm -hmm. it would be something similar with god but you know if if god you know if god could just throw money at us or you know throw his divine fiat at us and make us perfect then why wouldn't he do it it must be a logical impossibility and that and actually (laughs) <laughs> that our internal effort is also necessary. All right. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, and I think that's 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 the point I wanted to um, drive home with the analogy of the gatekeeper and the gate, right? So the the dichotomy that you brought up is the idea of if it's all God, why isn't everyone saved? Versus we have to contribute something, some sort of goodness that sort of sprouts from our own being. Um, if 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 I'm to sort of logically Allow the possibility of God's rejection, but the the point of the uh, gatekeeper analogy is is the idea that libertarian freedom can still uh, can still hold true because it's just a choice, um, and the choice doesn't have to be an active principle. If I choose, I've been choosing to remain seated this whole time, but I haven't, but I haven't actually contributed any active energy to that, right? In the same way, the gatekeeper doesn't contribute anything to the armies marching in. So in the same way, when we receive God, God's salvation, it's completely an act of God. The only the only active choice we can make, rather than a passive choice, is to resist the will of God. And that's why God, not everyone can be saved, is some people do choose that. They choose to reject God's offer of grace. So libertarian freedom is still preserved in this, but God, but Christians can maintain, as we commonly say, sola deo gloria, all glory to God, God glory to God alone.
0: Um, so we are... Uh idea of salvation is a little bit different from the christian one in that a the Mm -hmm. mentality needs to be cultivated so if you reach a certain level of perfection in this lifetime and it's not enough for you to fit in in heaven then you'll take birth again and and be given better opportunities than you had in this life to continue so it's sort of um like to ground this in reality say somebody becomes a christian but they have some kind of addiction to something which is very anti-christian like let's say a drug habit Maybe they need to give up their drug habit in order to be a better Christian, or is there something analogous that, that you would agree with? Maybe I'm not understanding the question. I'm sorry, could you rephrase that? I'm not
2: quite sure I got what you meant. there. Um,
0: well, somebody could be, have a you know be, be living a lifestyle which is sinful in a way which which dishonors God, mm-hmm. and when they want to when they want to come right. to God, they need to stop living a life that dishonors God. Mm-hmm. so whatever details yeah. that plays out may be different in certain different religions because of different ideas of what's moral and you know like for instance we don't mm-hmm. meat and so on but there'll be some idea of these things dishonor god to, to be a proper christian to actually come to god you need to bring your behavior up a little bit so and that that would require yeah, there's some but, amount of mercy that, that god purifies the heart mm-hmm. and that you you know you come and you pray and you hear about god and you know you chant the hymns and you know so on. Yeah. And that purifies the heart, and, and it's actually God purifying the heart. It's stated very explicitly in Bhagavatam that Christ, you know, God cleanses the heart for somebody who's on the process, somebody who's taking shelter of him. Mm-hmm. But that, but we have to make some effort in order to, to be in the shower.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to appeal to an analogy from the Chronicles of Narnia. Houston uh, becomes a dragon, um, and he's a little boy who becomes a dragon. In order to not become a dragon, Aslan has to has to basically pull off his scales one piece by one piece um, and of course it's horribly painful and awful but that's the only way to return him into a little boy again rather than this monstrous beast um, and a similar analogy is the sanctification process the making us holy that you brought, you know, that you brought up uh, there's, it's, yes we do need to bring our behavior up but even that is God working in us it's Aslan peeling off our scales so that we can become truly human again truly ourselves again that's, and that, to me, is that's grace. That's God working in us to change us, to, to mold us into a true human being, so that even those good actions are to God alone. Now, of course, we still have the freedom. We're still doing The temptation for the dragon in that is to stop it, to run away, to prevent the lion from doing that, because it's a horribly painful process. It's tough. It's difficult. And that's the moral journey that we all experience. So, I... I the thing I'm wrestling that I'm trying to preserve here is the idea of free will, but God is the sole active agent in the sanctification process in the process of making us holy.
0: Yeah. I like that point. That's interesting. Uh, we we have an idea in our theology that, um, like even if you can't externally, you know, like some people may be addicted to something and if they just can't give it up due to whatever reason, maybe it's their karma, their mentality is to have this, this, their karma is to have this mentality that, that they addicted to the certain action and they just can't give it up but if they can remain unenvious and still be be dedicated to coming closer to god and still praise you know people who are devoted to god then still they're elevated where you know Mm contrasted to somebody who has some kind of addiction which is which dishonors god and they're like and then instead of sitting with that and realizing you know being humble you know being unenvious and if instead of doing that they start criticizing people who are better than them and say oh you know these people that they, they think mm-hmm. they're better than me and so on then um then they're they're actually removing themselves from the grace by doing that so there is this idea that as, as mm-hmm. long as you can have the right mentality of just you know being humble and taking the grace and appreciating yeah. the you know those people who are actually behaving better than you and their relationship with god then you're on the journey mm-hmm. yeah I would agree.
2: Um, And there's a beautiful passage in John chapter 15. Remain, and it's Christ speaking here. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch Mm -hmm. can bear fruit on its own. It must remain in the vine. And so it's this idea of Christ being the font that gives us nourishment and allows us to grow. And all our job is to remain. It's literally abide. Just to stay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Also, another point is like the soul choosing to sort of put its own volition by hanging on and maybe chanting God's name in our tradition. Uh, That itself is kind of a natural outspurt and a spontaneous expression of the soul's devotion in the first place. Um, It's just sort of a a byproduct of God's grace is that the soul naturally wants to do these things of its own accord. So in one sense, you can say that it is God's grace that we're holding on because that holding on is just a natural expression of our uh, sort of
2: God's grace coming through us. Yeah, I think this is, again, the more we push each other, the closer we become. (laughs) Um,
0: We should probably... um, start wrapping things it's up. It's gotten up quite yeah, this has been a monster um, I've, session. <laughs> there's two questions from YouTube we can deal with those and then see if there's anything else we want to touch on before we wrap up. So, yeah. Divya, um Devyam how did the first birth happen when there's no karmic account for the individual?
1: Oh, okay. Uh that's easy. The you know the the soul when it in this when it first chooses to come down, it can basically choose its birth of its own accord. Um whatever birth it wants. It can choose. So, uh, yeah, That's the first birth happens because it, it has its free will. So, if it wants to come down, it can be whatever it wants to be. It usually uh, it's described that it's generally like a higher being with less sort of impurities than the human form. But uh, the, the, it happens because the soul has libertarian free will and it has the ability to make that choice and to choose whatever birth it wants at that instant when it's not free, when it's free from karmic baggage.
0: Right. And I'll- Get that, the other one. Um, Capture Christianity has better software than me, but it's only available on Apple. <laughs> oh, okay, that worked. Um, okay, Jason, uh, if God creates us to have free will, why would one appeal to God for intervention, which could risk impacting the free will or autonomy of all humanity?
2: Um it's an we interesting question both. yeah, we could probably both
1: contribute to that one. you want to go first yeah um yeah, it's interesting uh so I guess we can pray to God, uh, we can appeal to God to you know end coronavirus or something um but yeah, I mean, God will intervene to, in people's lives to the extent that they want God to intervene in their lives, so um you know God you know there. I mean, not every soul is totally versed to God. You know, some souls may want 20% of God's intervention, some souls may want 50, some souls may want 100. So, you know, uh, God can at least intervene to the extent that people are willing to uh, accept him. So um, why would we appeal? You know, we can appeal to God and maybe through our own desire, God may be uh, more willing to um, intervene or uh, to those people that want that intervention. Um, also, yeah, the, the fact, at least as far as, um, as, far as personal, like uh, this is sort of on a group level, but on a personal level, uh, there's sometimes the question of what's the use of petitionary prayer? Because if God is, um, you know, if God's just going to do what he's going to do anyway, what's the use of our desire in the process? The role of our own personal desire in the process of petitioning is that when we ask God to do something, it itself represents an indication to have God intervene in our own lives. So, uh, you know, God wants to intervene in our lives, and by calling out to him, at least in our own hearts, we're opening up our own hearts and giving God space to intervene in our lives.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great answer. I mean, all I would say is, it's to go back to that play, that analogy of a play, God doesn't stand outside as a director, especially within Christian theology, he enters the play. And just as my free will doesn't impact your free will. In fact, it's the very interplay that that opens up choices and opens up the possibility of relationship. So God interacting with us opens up choices for us, like if God didn't intervene, how would we have the offer of salvation in Christ, right? That's the, That very freedom is allowed because God came in. And it's that, that, that dynamic relationship, that ongoing relationship that actually enables free will more than it does restrict it.
0: So another point we could make is... Um once you you know you're you're appealing to god to get you something that you can't get without his assistance but once you are in heaven then um we you know at least in the vaishnava theology there's so much free will to be had there there's so much going on in relationship with god there's food and dance and song and little cliques of different people that get along and those cliques might have a kind of pleasurable rivalry with other cliques and so on. But the free will doesn't end. Mm. Yeah, good questions. Um, So that's all the questions. Um, So I guess if there's any other final points you guys wanna touch on before we wrap it up.
1: Uh, Yeah, that was quite good. We went through quite a lot. (laughs) Covered a lot of ground. Probably need a good <laughs>
2: break for a couple couple weeks now. Uh, yeah, that was. Uh... But Dissertation. Hey, that's my that's my evidence of hell, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no karmic injustice could could could, could justify this. Uh-huh. Actually, I mean, I I had a good time working on it. Actually,
1: I'd beg to differ on that point.
2: Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I actually, I do too. I just like to. <laughs>
1: yeah. Be something to work out yeah. Cycles.
3: Yeah, this is good. I'm
1: definitely going to, this is good even for my own dissertation. There's some points that I, uh, I've kind of reached a standstill. I couldn't really think of much more, but this is given
2: me some more food for thought. So You got a That's heck of a dissertation, okay, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. The, the amount that I was able to get through. So I appreciate you sending that. No, yeah, no,
1: you're, uh, yeah, you really impressed me. You're going, I can see you're going places. <laughs>
2: appreciate it, you are too. Hope we meet yeah. up ne- next time, next time uh, any yeah. of us are in Cambridge. Probably all three of us who get to meet the rubber Moth. we should uh we'll grab a we'll we'll grab a uh dinner or something. Grab a coffee yeah. or something. Yeah. Whatever the tradition is. I don't know what you guys do over there. <laughs> yeah, there's uh we definitely like our food. So well,
1: alright,
0: thanks for that guys. <laughs> Hopefully we can do more of these discussions in the future.
1: Yeah. After I hope they enjoyed. Has no, there been some uh has there been positive feedback from the
2: audience? Maybe
0: uh, yeah, there's people uh, uh I think Seth's got a few fans.
2: Oh okay. oh, okay, so I'm thinking my brother-in-law posted this on his Facebook, I haven't checked, because I had random people messaging me that I did not tell about this, <laughs> oh, yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, these were already my fans, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I I had to get Jason, that second question, Jason Eisenbarger, is a friend of mine. Right. Okay.
0: <laughs> All right, let's... And
2: I haven't, I haven't told him about let's this. Let's see if I can get
0: the outro to go, but yeah, we had like 10 or so people going.